At Coco Talk, we'd like to thank the patrons who sponsor our show. So our heartfelt gratitude goes out to Al Hartman, Alan Murphy, Blair Ledoux, Boaten Aaron of Amigos Retro Gaming, Brendan Donaghy, Brian Weasler, Karen Anscombe, D. Bruce Moore, Diego, Eric Canales, Glenn Hewlett, Graham Vebke, Grant Leedy, Henry Strickland, Jason Downs, Ken Reichert, Kyle Etter, Malfunk, Michael Pitsley, Rick Eulin, Paul Fiscarelli, Paul Shoemaker, Paul Thayer, Rob Inman, Robert Murphy, Stephen Wagner, Steve Batson, Steve Rasmussen, Terry Steen, Terry Steggy, The Backyard Shed Gang, Tom C., Tom S., Tim Lindner, Tom Heron, and Tony C. Thank you ever so much, patrons. Coco Talk is an unscripted live broadcast. Anything can and will happen. The views and opinions expressed by members of the panel and the live audience are their own and not necessarily those of the Coco Talk show, its sponsors, affiliates, or subsidiaries. Open minds encourage, sense of humor recommended. If any off-color comments were made, we're sorry. Hi, this is Dale Leader, designer of TRS-80 Color Baseball, and you're listening to Coco Talk. Coco Talk, the only show in the world featuring David Ladd. It's time to grease your weasel and do whatever yo pleasel, cause we're about to rock your 8-bit world. Welcome to Coco Talk. Let you guys know, Stevie has been fired. And I, Grant Lady, am taking over. The coup has started. <laughs> so top left, we have our streamer. Thank you so much for doing this, uh, Grant Lady. Hello, everybody. Hello. Nice to see you, man. And uh, then there's me. Hello, I'm Nick Murata. Nick Murata, Nick Murata. You guys know me. Uh, next up, we have Ron Delvo. Hello. Hi, Ron. How you doing? Hello. Pretty good. How are good. you guys? Good, good. Uh, after Ron, we have our 6809 assembler expert, George. Oh, hey, everybody. Glad to see you. Good to have you here, George. Following George, we have our Apple resident, Mark Overhoser. Howdy, howdy. Glad to be here. Glad to have you here. Following him, we have uh, my, my fellow Canadian, L. Curtis Boyle. Good day, eh? and welcome to the show. Good day, eh? Only I can understand that, eh? <laughs> Take off. <laughs> I got a book that translates. <laughs> Charlie Parker, uh, go ahead. All right, now we have a hardware aficionado, Patrick Euland. Howdy, folks. Hey, Patrick, good to have you. Next up, we have a man with many toggle switches. Uh, and uh, his his beloved cat Rocky. We have uh, Jason Cocoman Record. Hey, hey everybody! Good to and, see uh, you yes. guys. Rocky is here, and I think he's just about done. Yep, yeah, I'm getting a pot of the face. I think that's my signal to put him down. <laughs> oh, 
Yeah, Talk. cats have cats have you servants. Ready? Yeah. All right. Cats have servants, not owners. So right, exactly. they have staff. Staff, yeah. yes. And I have All a right. diet, Dr. Pepper. Uh, we have our backup streamer, Mr. Mark Bosley. Hello. Hey, Mark. Good to see you. Uh, next up, we have our Alan Murphy. Howdy, howdy from Burning Up, Texas. Woohoo! <laughs> All right, Alan. Good to have you here. And finally, we have a man who I hope is excited to be here today, Mr. David Ladd. Good day, everyone. And yes, I'm somewhat excited to be here. And hopefully somewhat. the show does not go disrailed. Oh, my goodness. Way to sell it, David. What faith you have in Grant. He's going to do a great job. Don't, don't <laughs> oh, don't worry. He's good at filling those buckets. Oh, <laughs> all right so uh all right so we're gonna go on to our first segment which today is going to be uh the, the uh, game on results all right but i think we'll run the coco thoughts first oh i'm sorry yes <laughs> actually yeah there's a oh yes run the coco thoughts all right we, we heard from we heard from gimes this week yeah run so away see, it's coco thoughts let's see what he had to think about this week all right here we go and now coco thoughts by Samuel Gimes. Sorry, Grant, I couldn't help that. That just came out really well. You bomb the ground when the target is in range. You know what I'm talking about. Just let me know if you want to go. And scramble. Are you going to roll right into the game? Got a nice fuel tanks. Drop a dime, mountain to climb, and the cave you get yourself in, <clears throat> and take your flight to every fight, and get your confidence shaken. <clears throat> That was awesome. <laughs> You're the only one of us that saw and heard it there, Grant. I'm sure it was. I'll have to go back and watch it in post, but that's okay. <laughs> I mean, All right. Know, so we need to see that's how I can. I have two monitors. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We ready for the uh, Game On segment? Yes, sir. That is technically part of the Game On segment, but yes, we are definitely ready for the results. All right. Technically. Technically. Well, well technically. Coin. Welcome to another week of results. This week we played Whirly Bird Run with 17 scores submitted. Bob and Coco, 7,700. 
Damon Beals, 16,500. Me, 17,100. Ken Reichard, 18,050. Rick Yu, 18,550. Jim Rye, 19,450. Sabhead, 21,000. Pedro Pena, 21,150. Canadian Retro Things, 21,650. Coco Discord user, 22,150. El Curtis Boyle, 22,650. David Craker, 22,950. Rich N, 25,850. Mr. Dave, 27,650. Tasman, 30,750. Buck Owens, 37,250. And the number one score this week belongs to Tom Gunn, 39,600. Great score. Thank you to all this week's participants. So Tom Gunn is number one this week. Well, congratulations yeah, first, to Tom. First time for him, I believe. Yeah, that was great. Tom yeah, was, Gunn. Tom Gunn, that sounds made up. I'm going to go ahead and share my screen. He's in chat, too. Congratulations, Tom. Now, Steve Rasmussen, alias Buck Owens, is saying in the chat here, Tom had like 43K, didn't he? Did he do that after the deadline or? No. Oh, I don't know. I got the last score that I had for him. I didn't get a chance to take a look this morning, so. There were no scores submitted after the deadline. Oh, we better review. We better audit the uh, high score challenge <laughs> record <laughs> immediately. Scandal breaks out yeah, on Coco Talk Game on segment. I, I call for an immediate audit. All right, we're gonna have to do, do a recount. Yeah, shut everything down. We'll you have to results. count the scores one point at a time until you get to the final number. Yeah. We'll get the results. Oh, it was. It might have been the dragon version. Not. Oh, yes, it was the dragon. Oh, that's right. Version. Yeah, because the dragon version's easier. So he we had to. He actually disqualified himself from using those those scores. Yeah, the dragon version, the second level, the the uh, there were no rockets firing at you or something. Yeah, there's and, a couple of things that were a little bit easier on the and, dragon version, which the, I yeah. I find really ironic because usually you know games for Europe are much harder than their North American counterparts, so that's that's kind of a strange, strange thing. Anyway, so, go ahead. Once uh, again, uh, thank you to uh, CRT for the ga uh, game footage. Uh, CRT is playing a version that allows you to choose between three different palettes. So I'm not sure where uh, I haven't seen that one personally, but on his version, you can choose. Between, yeah, that's uh, that's usually the dragon version as well, because micro deal, because, of course, they didn't have artifacting there. They had the option of buff green and, you know, the, the two Pimo 3 color sets, and then they would let you play the black and white version, which oh. sometimes worked OK and sometimes looked like crap. So so it had artifacts, Pimo uh, 3, 1 and, and Pimo 3, 2, uh, whatever. Yes, color set zero and color one. Color set zero and color set one, yeah. Yeah, yeah the Puyen Puke palette was available. Yeah. Now, I will mention, uh, just for completeness here, that the original version by Spectral that came out in 82 was definitely in P mode three screen color set uh, zero, the green, blue, yellow, red version. That wasn't uh, a bad choice. But, I wonder what. Go ahead. But that was only on the first three levels because that was considered the outside level. So they used brighter colors. And then it went to artifacting when you got into the cave levels, which is levels four and five. So the original one mixed it on purpose. Interesting he didn't choose blue for the sky, but maybe maybe the red didn't look good on it or something. I don't know. Uh, he went for a green or he didn't like the border. But I mean, that color set works okay. Uh, screen uh, color set zero works okay. Yeah. I, I'm just so used to the original because I actually had a copy of the original. Um, so I'm used to the first three being one color set, and then it switches to the cave, you know, the black background to signify you're in the cave. 
yeah on the on the other two so for me that one's where they cheated and put it in p mode four here right off the bat just doesn't look right to me at all so yeah but that's just what i'm used to go ahead anyway sorry so this is a really good uh good version of uh scramble which which was was a sh uh, rocket ship or spaceship in the original but it's a helicopter in this game but it's other than that it's a very good uh recreation of scramble yeah, now there's another one similar to that called Super Cobra, which I think had extra levels, but it actually did use the helicopter motif. So it's kind of like Scramble, but with a little bit of Super Cobra thrown in. Was that an, that was an arcade game? Yeah, they both were, yeah. 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 Well, I didn't know if you meant arcade or Coco. Yeah, that was, a, okay, Super Cobra. I never played that in the arcade. I played Scramble quite a bit. Wasn't very good at it, but I played it quite a bit. Yeah, I wasn't that, very good at the arcade game either. Super Cobra had more levels than the five. That was the big thing. It was kind of a, almost a sequel style thing, but right not that i was really good at this game either as you saw i only made it to yeah, this one's hard <laughs> i made it to the i made it to the indoor levels with the cave once and i got to that point that buck owens pointed out where you have the uh really small diagonal yes. chasm you have to go through i got to there and died now i want to make an admission up front here when i was a kid i aced that fourth level that little narrow thing and you have to hit it twice by the way there's one going down and there's one a second one a little bit later on the second level and I used to had that down to a science. I would make it through there every single time. There's an even narrower one in, in level five before you blow up a thing's worth 5,000 points. That's the one I had trouble with as a kid. This time, I could not make it past level four, and I tried multiple times. I, this was, wasn't one of those where I just you know, had five minutes before lunch and played it once. I played this for a good <laughs> hour and a half because I was getting so frustrated because I knew I was able to do this as a kid. And I did manage to get through that tunnel a couple times, the first one, but I never made it through the second one. But that was more fluke than whatever I used to remember of how to time it is gone from my brain. Yeah, so uh, what's, what's going on there? Are you getting old and uh, rusty? Yeah, pretty much. Reaction time slows down. The, the white in my hair is rust. You're right. It's, uh... Yeah. That's okay. You still made it further than uh, I ever did. So. Yeah, I was, trying, I was trying to get through the level because if you can complete level five, when you kill the uh, the boss thing, which isn't that huge, but it's a little bit different than the other ones, it's 5,000. Well, you can see there on the uh, intro screen, there, that's the thing you have to blow up at level five. And that would give you a huge jump in your score. So that's how I used to get high scores, because I think my high score back in the day was like 60, 70,000 or something like that. But uh, yeah, I was quite disappointed. I could not do it this time. So again, this was written by an independent uh, young guy who entered it in a, con in a competition of some sort? Yeah, uh, 1982 in about the spring, Spectral Associates at that time was publishing their own in-house stuff by Tom Rosenbaum and some of the other people that formed Spectral Associates. So like Ghost Gulp or Glax Tax, which was our feature last week. Um, Madness and the Minotaur, you know, that kind of stuff. So they were doing their own stuff and they were actually looking to get some other authors to come on board because Telmix was starting to come up. So we we're getting some competition, et cetera. So they put in a, a big full page ad in Rainbow uh, for what they called the Prism Award, the Prism Trophy. And they were offering prizes for the top three games that they would select. And there was a $2,000, and all of them offered publishing of their game. Plus, you'd get $2,000 and the Prism Trophy if you got first place, $500 if you got second place, and $300 if you got third place. And all three of those prizes were claimed. So, Whirly Bird Run was number one, so that was the big winner. Wow. Uh, number two was, I'm trying to remember, Space Century was one. I think that was third. I'm blanking on the second one for a stupid reason. I should know it. Anyway, yeah, this was the first place winner. And uh, Brett Norman, which is actually Brett Norman is his middle name. Uh, it's Brett Norman Keaton. And he was part of either a father, son, or a brother's team. I'm not sure which. I think it's brothers. Tom Keaton was the other one. 
And both of them ended up publishing multiple games for Spectral. Sometimes they collaborated and wrote it together. Sometimes they did their independent ones and they both were pretty good game programmers. So uh, oh, yeah, it was kind nice. of a family thing going on. Very cool. $2,000 back in the day, that's a lot of money. 1982, yeah, that, that was. That's when a dollar was worth something. <laughs> that's yeah. when a quarter was worth something. Yeah, up here in Canada, we're still waiting for that to happen, but. Uh... Yeah. Well, that's that's because you have like a moose on yours. That's the problem. <laughs> Hold anyway, on. It's, a, it's a really good game. We've had multiple Scramble clones. There's there's Scramble with a K uh, by Tom Mix. Um, the Dragon had multiple versions of Scramble that we never saw here. They had some that were in Pimo 3 or 4. They had some that were in Semi-Graphics 24, which are pretty cool, like Supercopta. Um mm. But this this one out of all the ones I've played and seen, and there's probably about half a dozen total, is is still by far the best to me. It's got the smoothest scrolling. The, the Tom Mix one, it kind of it scrolls the screen, including everything on it, including the player shape. So your chip looks like it's juddering back and forth really quickly, spasming left to right. Yep. Um, this one does it dead smooth. Um, so he did an amazing job of this. And the fact that this has all five levels and fits into 16K is pretty impressive to me too. 16K, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty good. So, Saying the graphics screen 6K by itself. I don't know if he uses double buffering. I don't think he does in this case. But uh, yeah, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. Decent sound effects too. You've got the kind of the helicopter rotaries, you know, rotor blades going in the background the whole time, and the pitch changes depending on the height of your ship. Yeah, it's really well done. It was a, a game I, I really enjoyed as, as a as a youth, and I thought it would be a good one for the game on challenge. Yeah, it definitely was. It's it's also a hard one. It starts off like once you get used to level one, it, it gets fairly easy. You can, most people can make it through level one after a few tries pretty easily. Yeah. So you have a sense of accomplishment. Level two is a bit harder. Um, well, as far as strategies, uh, for the rest of you, I'll, I'll say my brief strategies at the end here. But what what would you what did you guys use for strategies on the various levels as far as you got? Well, uh, like you said, level one is pretty easy. I just hung down low as long as I could. And make sure you get a lot, and it's very easy to get lots of fuel on level one. So, yeah, it's a very good. easy level. Level two, I tried to stay up near the top and just hope I hit fuel tanks. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like my strategy of don't die. Yeah. Right. See, my strategy in level two is different. Um, in my case, I would try to hang low. Because there's a certain point, especially if you got the lower pieces of terrain, there's a certain point where the saucers do not go below that, so it's like a safe zone. And then you just kind of hop over the mountains, and that way you're closer to the fuel and you can try to hit them. And every once in a while you have to fly up and kind of dodge around or shoot the, the saucers. But basically I stayed low as much as I could because it's a safe zone from the saucers. Then you just have to worry about the rockets coming up and then, of course, dodging a mountain when it comes up. It also gives you a much better chance of fuel. So I could usually make it through level two pretty well every time too. No, that's good. Yeah, I wasn't as good. I wasn't as consistent make, making it through level two. And then level three, which is the indestructible flying saucer thingies or whatever you want to call them, comets or meteors or whatever. Um, that one, I the basic strategy I had was kind of stay vertically roughly around the middle. That gives you opportunities to dodge both up and down to dodge them. And a little bit in from the far left because sometimes you have to like back up at the same time you're going up or down to give yourself that extra time to dodge to get out of a whole track of them um so in that case it, you i would go in about maybe a quarter towards the right from the left hand side maybe a little bit less but i'd be in not flush left but in a little bit 
then I could actually like go diagonally down to the left, diagonally up to the left, right, to buy that extra time to get out of the way, and then go forward again as soon as I could. And then occasionally you have to dip down and try to you know hit the fuel tanks, which is the hard part. Yeah. The safe zone. There is a safe zone on this one too, on the bottom from the the floating things, but it's much much lower, so the train has to be very low for that to work. Mm hmm. Yeah, this is a hard level. Yeah. This one I made it through probably 60% of the time. In a game, not not on a single ship. But I, I don't know how far Tom Gunn made it with his score. Uh, or Buck Owens. I don't know how far those guys Yeah, Tom, Tom said he did an opposite strategy. He stayed on top on level two, like you did, Nick, and then uh, as low as possible on level three. Whereas I, I did you know, low, as low as possible on level two and in the middle on level three yeah i do have a question for this uh tom gunn does he have a brother peter gunn <laughs> famous songwriter <laughs> da, 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 also apparently da, 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 tom has a video too uh, tom you have to send us the links before the show so we can get that included <laughs> unless he did send that to you i don't know if he did mm. yeah, so, so i don't know put the link in chat so, Curtis, did you want to mention uh, you did a little research this week and found a little bit of sad news? Yeah, I mean, back when I did the Coco Games page entry for Willard Bird Run, which was probably in the late 90s because it was one of the earlier ones I did, I had tried to see if I could get a hold of Brett Norman to do an interview or, you know, the email interviews I was doing back then. And I just never could find anything on him. Um, I, I decided just kind of on a lark after Nick announced with the game for this week to try to do it again because it had been like 20 some odd years and unfortunately I found out he he's passed away at a very young age of 38. Wow. Oh yeah. In the in the 2000s so unfortunately that uh, interview will never happen which is too bad. He actually did go on to do some other programming other game programming for other things. I think one he was working on before just when he when he passed away was a uh, Star what was it called Nick? Do you remember Starfleet 2 or mm, something? I can't remember. It was a PC one that um, a, a doctor, somebody had, had created the first version. It was quite popular. And then he wanted to do a really expanded version and he was having trouble getting it to work um, on these older platforms, just from the sheer size of the game he was trying to, to do. And he actually, Brett volunteered as kind of a shareware project thing to start working on it. And unfortunately he passed away before it ever got completely finished, but he apparently added fairly far along. And um, yeah. The, the guy that had created the original version of it uh, was impressed. He said, out of all the programmers he's known over the years, Brett by far was the smartest of the bunch. Like mm. The guy was pulling off tricks that he just couldn't believe to get it to run on smaller systems. And apparently Brett had a version that was fairly playable and fairly close to being done. Um, and there was a share because there was a few other people you know, contributing to the code and to the artwork, et cetera. So there was a version out that the other people had before Brett passed away, but Brett had kind of told people that there was a better version that he had got working internally and they did try to arrange with the family to see if they could get it but they could never get it off whatever drive it was supposedly on so that that version had been lost forever unfortunately mm. and it was kind of based on star trek East type stuff that's all i remember but but i never did see the original game but yeah it was just a sad sad news to to hear about that so. yeah especially now whether his brother slash father tom is still around i uh, there seems to be some hints he's still around so i'll maybe still try to get a hold of him because he did some of his own coco game program programming plus he collaborated i think the two of them did lunar rover patrol together together as an example um oh and then he did some of his own i think glax was glax attacks tdk 
on the credit screen. I can't remember off the top of my head. Because there's a couple of games that have TDK, and that's that's Tom. I don't remember his middle name stands for Keaton. That's his uh, Brett's brother or father. So I'll I'll keep trying to see if I can get a hold of him because it'd be interesting to, to hear about some of the old days. And plus, they did some of the best games, you know, in the early '80s for the Cobra. Yeah. So a little sad news um, to hear about. Yeah, I was a little bit bummed out after that. Though. Yeah. Yeah, 38's awful young. Yeah. So we have some comments in chat, uh, other strategies people use. Now, because uh, the Game On segment's a score-based challenge, people played with that mind, goal in mind. You don't get you don't get points after level uh, two. I guess they're saying is that really true? You don't get points for bombing the fuel tanks and stuff. But anyway, uh, some I people. You, I think you do on the original one if they're like some people were playing the dragon version like there's been there's several versions around and i was playing the original because that's what i had here already oh so maybe some changes were done i don't know steve's saying levels four and five there were no points there so some people would play level two repeatedly and like die on purpose to to, to play the level repeatedly to maximize their score which is fair that's that's a fair that's tactic. that's true i mean the few times i did make it through the first tunnel i mean i managed to get my score up a little bit my high score is actually based on one of those ones where i made it through the first tunnel the first yeah. one, if I remember, it's diagonally, you go down from the upper left to the lower right through that little narrow tunnel. The next one's going the other direction. It's, you know, up to the right you're going. And I made it to that one the couple times I did make it past, which was fluke. I, I can't figure out the timing. Like I said, I had it down pat as a kid. It really bugs me. I couldn't get that going again. But. Okay, Buck Owens is saying very limited points on levels four and five. Yeah, there's not as much stuff to bomb. Mostly level four and five is trying to get past it, but yeah. then the narrow cave tunnels. It's kind of yeah. like uh, Sea Dragon <laughs> when you're trying to go through some of those when you first oh, play the game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that game is brutal. Yeah, it's interesting that the, the Dragon version was easier. Like, that's that's almost the opposite of what normally happens. Normally, you know, games designed for the Dragon are much harder. They're pixel perfect jumps and pixel. Like, the tunnel would have been perfect for a, a standard Dragon game. <laughs> yeah. So I'm kind of surprised they, they made it easier for the Dragon. That's, that's. Hmm. I wonder what the story is behind that. Maybe we'll find out on the Dragon Special on August fourteenth. Oh, maybe. I don't know who who did. That. I guess it would have been um, modified by Brent for the. Uh, I don't know the. It, there's a mixture. The, the stuff that was sold from the North American market to the Dragon, like Computerware, Spectral, Tomics, etc., did get intro screens and little menus added to them. And I think that was Microdeal internally doing that. I don't think Tom Mix and the rest of them had anything to do with that, you know, pick buff green or, or black and white type thing. I think that was all done by Microdeal as part of their porting process. Right. But one of our guests on the show, Chris Poacher, is actually the guy on Facebook that runs the Microdeal page. Now, he covers Microdeal, not just the Dragon stuff, because Microdeal actually ended up selling for C64s and you know, BBC micros and whatever else as well. So he's he's collected a vast swath. He's got bookshelves full of microdeal stuff. So hopefully he knows some of the history behind it because I think he's actually met some of the people from microdeal. So maybe he knows and maybe we'll find out on the 14th. Hmm. Teaser. There you go. <laughs> All right. So uh, if there's not much more to say about this game, uh, we can probably start talking about next week's game. Unless anybody has anything else to say. Uh, or forever hold your peace. <laughs> All right. 
So next week's game is actually a request by L. Curtis Boyle. So Curtis, I'm sure you'll know what game this is. You better since you requested it. Donkey King. No, it's uh, Ninja Warrior by Charles Forsyth and the Programmers Guild. Ninja Warrior. So basically, you're you're jumping over, or you're better off kicking the, uh, the rocks, and uh, depending avoiding, on the level. Depending on the level, yeah. So you're <laughs> avoiding avoiding obstacles. Get from the left end to the right end. Uh, so left to right uh, platformer. Yeah. Now so, a couple a couple things of special note to mention on this one. It's a Coco one and two game. Yes. Um, 16k required. Can be played with keyboard or joystick control. So if you're one of those people that has a, a real hardware but doesn't have a joystick, this will work. In fact, I prefer keyboard myself. Uh, the left and right arrow keys speed up, slow down. I think the up arrow key, no, spacebar jumps, it kicks. I think up arrow jumps and spacebar kicks. Now you can do both at the same time. You can actually jump up and then kick as you're landing to destroy a rock as you land on it. See, that's one little bit of a trick there. Uh, the earlier levels, it's kind of like Moon Patrol. It's kind of what it reminds you because you get little gaps that you have to jump over and you have rocks that you can smash or jump over. Um, on later levels, you start getting like fireballs coming at you and then you start getting ninjas that are, you know, stationary on the screen that if you run into them, you die. That's where your little trident thing there is to spear them with. Then they start running towards you. Then you start getting arrows shot at you at the same time. Like it keeps adding every level and they're measured as belts. So you start on, you know, white belt and then you go to yellow belt and second level yellow belt. Now, one thing I would mention, the main game is in P mode one, as you see on the screenshot that Nick's showing here. That works fine on the Coco 3. So you can play that and it looks you know, dead, dead on what it's supposed to. The scores, high score screen, the intro screen, and the uh, belt screens like this one here are in a higher semi-graphics mode, which does not work on the Coco 3. So you will see a greatly spaced out. You'll be able to see your scores. So you can take a screenshot and still have your scores at the top there, but we'll you won't see, see ones, most yeah. of the rest of this. Um, so Seeing basically now, yes, it's a, it's a mess on the Coco 3. Yeah, yeah. And that, I mean, I, I can do the poke to get the graphics here to show up. So it'll say Ninja Warrior correctly and all that kind of stuff. But the text itself, the scores won't show up. So I don't want to recommend people doing that. Um, so for people with the Coco 3, that there's that caveat. I mean, you can try playing in an emulator if, if you want to be able to see everything X4, as it is. X-Roar works fine. Yeah, or X-Roar uh, may, may work fine if you're in Coco 1 and 2 mode. Um, so, I mean, on a Coco 3, it does work. You will be able to see your scores. The gameplay itself is fine. And the scores on there, too, if you need to. Uh, but you won't be able to see this properly, except for the scores at the top. You won't see the rest of it. And on the one, like, there's an inter emission screen between each one where it says, you know, now doing white belt, now doing yellow belt, now doing blue belt, et cetera. Uh, you, you won't be able to see most of that either, but you just hit a space bar or the joystick button to get past that and on to the next level of the game. So you can still play it. It just, you won't see these intermittent screens that's right so i guess it would work on a gimme x too right yes so I, I, to... I i could mention that but not too many people have them yet unfortunately yeah yeah i will have to check with ed here because i know he's fully moved in and i know he's catching up orders on a ton of other things that's backported so i'm not sure if he has a, a firm date he's going to start shipping the final product i know gary becker was doing some last minute tweaks because uh, they want to get it shipped out without people having to get the uh, the special software and stuff installed to you know, flash upgrades on their own or have to send it back to get a flash upgrade. So they're trying to make sure any last-minute bugs are solved before they actually start shipping the product, but, like to people that are not volunteering for it like have been in the past. Steve Rasmussen is saying that Cuthbert Dragon posted a Ninja Warrior video four hours ago on YouTube. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> oh, funny. Pure coincidence. 
Cuthbert Dragon, I mean, I tried getting in contact him for the Dragon Show because he'd be perfect. He's playing this all on real hardware. And um, he uh, had a couple of people, including me, sending him comments. And I was asking him if he'd like to join the show. And then he shut all the comments back off again. So I don't know what's going on there. Hmm. He's, he also removes videos randomly. Is that him? Yeah, he like he he did a whole bunch, and then he just deleted everything and started over. I think he was trying to come up with a fixed format and a fixed length because before it was just wildly all over the place time wise. So now they're all like roughly three minutes or less. So hopefully he keeps them going because the, the new ones are quite quite good. He actually will cut scene between so you can show each of the levels as far as he got to, so he doesn't have to play like thirty minutes to show you the levels in Sailor Man. He'll just you know here's level one for thirty seconds, here's part two for thirty seconds type thing, which is nice. It's a smart way to do it. So I'm, I'm okay with him removing the original ones and doing it this way. But I just wish he had the comments. But I'd love to have him on the show. Yeah, definitely. All right. So that's our game for next week. And uh, thank you, Grant. Thank you, CRT, for your video. Thanks to everybody who participated again this week and uh, make this uh, segment worthwhile doing. And uh, we'll see you next week. Awesome. Are we ready for a commercial break? Or as Stevie would say, a potty break. Ron, that's you. Ron, yeah. Ron, do you need a potty break? Uh, I don't know. We're only half an hour yeah. in, so yeah. I, I, I would go on. I would go on yeah. for the next segment first. All right. Yeah. Then the next segment then will be George George's segment here. Let me hit the intro for that. Are you ready, George? Yes, sir. All right. Here we go. All right, here we go with George. Take it away, George. Okay. Except for my chair for a change here. You want to share your screen? I'm not sharing that video. Yeah, I see. He's got the slideshow up right now. So. Is it up? You have to spotlight it, Grant. Oh, okay. All right, I see it now. All right, this week we're going to kind of go through uh, main things. Going to go talk about bits. I've heard a few comments about people having trouble with anding and oring, and it lots of stuff to do with bits. So we're going to go through a whole bunch of bit stuff. First, I want to drop back to. Uh, Last time we were here, when we were spinning 512 characters on screen, I want to uh, thing I put together uh, this week. Got to get in my chair here. And hang on while I get to where I want to be. Okay, I'll just do a quick. Test from last week. All right. We did the 512 characters spinning uh, 26 characters at each one. So we're going to, this is what we did last week. You recollect we ended up with spinning all 512 positions with 26 different characters and, and so forth. And a couple of comments we made about how much faster it was than writing in basic. So I've kind of wrote the same thing in basic. And this is basic. This won't take too long. Well, it will take long. If we get the screen filled out, that's basic doing basically the same thing the assembler language program did. 
going off to uh, basic, the random character generator, getting the number back, and then plugging that in A to Z in each one of the 512 positions. And then it's going to go through the same routine that we did in the assembler program and update it. So bear with me and we'll get through this. So definitely a lot slower by a magnitude of, I don't know how much. Yeah, are you are you putting this in an array then of 512 to keep track of them all? Or? No, I'm not even doing that. I'm just putting right on the screen to set those. So I didn't have to do these arrays. That took even longer. It's just going straight to the screen. Now it's going to flip them like the assembly language programmer did. So this would do a peak, grab the character, bump it up yep. by one, then wrap it back if it hits yep. Z. Okay. It gets a Z, but drop it back the same way that our assembly language program. So I'm not going to let this run long, but that's just show you the difference in the. Uh, yeah, it's hundreds of times. Yep. <laughs> yeah, and I'll, I'll hit the, uh, the assembly language program again. Okay, so much for that. Just wanted to. Now we're going to talk about uh, bits. I get, I get two screens here, and I got to keep them kind of synced up to what I've got here. We're seeing your bit step screen right now. Yep, there we go. All right, we're going to talk about bits this week, okay? And this is just the basic. Everybody knows what bits are, or at least I think they do. But then again, sometimes I hear stuff that I think maybe people don't understand them. I, I would presume because this is meant to be a beginner's course that that people may not. Yeah, you know, I, I kind of took that. And I just I figured that was pretty much it. Now, most people are writing in basic. They don't use too many bits there. So yeah. So anyway, their bits are it's an eight bit machine. So there's the eight bits. Goes from left to right, seven back down to zero. That's the way they're addressed. Okay, and I got the uh, interpretation and right. If all the bits are off, it's zero zero. If it's all binary. If the, if the farthest right bit zeros on, it's it's a, it's zero one, so on and so forth. All the way down to if you get four bits together, it's zero F. Now if you fill the whole thing up, you're going to end up with FF or two fifty five. That's why it's eight yeah. Bit bits this is where you can see why hex is is preferable for machine language programmers most of the time compared to decimal because it it lines up nicely. Because, yeah, because bits are a base two counting system. So like base 10, we go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And then you add a one in the front and go zero, one through, you know, for 10 through 19. And then it changes to two. So you're just changing every 10 digits. And binary, it's every two. So you get zero, one, zero, one, zero, one. So you can see at the very top four lines, there's zero, zero at the very tail end. Bits one and zero in the highlighted yellow uh, will basically be, you know, two bits off and then zero, one. And then the next number after that, if you're counting in binary, because you only have two digits, you, the first one wraps back to zero, and then you start counting the second digit, one, zero, one, one, et cetera. And that's how the, the bits work. And the hex works every 16, which works dead even to work out uh, to two characters for a single byte of eight bits. Whereas decimal, it's kind of halfway between. That's why you have to go up to three digits to 255. Yep. Okay, so we're gonna, that's, that's what, that's what, that's what, the, oops. that's what the bits were. Now we're going to look at some of the operations that I've used in a, in a past uh, class and seem to be somewhat confusing to some people. Okay, logical AND. Okay, we're going to start with the AND. We've got ANDs and ORs. We're going to do the AND first. We have three basic instructions, AND A, which is register A, AND B, register B, and AND CC. Okay, we'll talk about that one later. 
but and means you are putting two uh, to register together and some other other input to it. And it says if this bit is on and this bit is on, it's a one. If that's the only combination. I mean, if it's zero, zero, it's a zero. Okay, my cursor does work this week. I got them highlighted in, in yellow here. You got one here, one here. That means it's, it's on. So it's and, it says and. It doesn't say R, it just says and. Over here, we have a one and a zero. It's a zero. A zero, the one is a zero. Okay, so that's that's what and does in, in programming language. Now, when you actually come up to the 8-bit register and you have a series like this here, hex 8a, which is 1000001010, and you end it with you 02, the only bits that show up after that uh, instruction is executed is the ones that there's and something paired together. A 1 and a 0 doesn't add up. A 1 and a 0 doesn't add up, but a 1 to 1, 1 will give you your result. Yeah, so basically you're taking two numbers that you, you put onto each other, it's like adding or something like that. So you do your first number ending with the second number. Any bits that are set on both stay set on the result. Any bits that are either both zero or one zero or zero one all end up being zero. So basically it gets rid of anything except for anything that's set on both numbers you're ending together. Hence the word and. Now, just before you go further, I just want to, uh, the one thing I remember when I was learning machine language for the first time is that I was really confused about and and oring and all this stuff because there's basic commands that do that too, but they're meant to be kind of a different thing. You're like if a string equals 12 or FF or Bob or whatever, uh, then do something or and, you know, this other variable equals something else. Like it was basically saying, if these two conditions are true, then do the then part of the if then statement. And this just didn't make sense to me because it, it isn't quite the same thing. That's and that's correct. one thing that logical anding and, you know, anding or oring when you're doing if then statements is different. And, if, and you have to remember that. If A is equal to B and C is equal to D, yeah. it's different than this and. Yeah. And that was what really confused me. That took me a while to get wrapped my head around. So I can imagine that's why some people have been confused uh, when we were going through some of this stuff last time. Okay, we want to test them bits. Okay, if you figure out here what you end it, you end up with this. Uh, this one bit is on out of that there. Okay, same way here, we've got a, we load A, you register A with that same 8A. We're going to end it with to see if bit 7 is on, to test if bit 7 is on. Okay, it is on. Not, not the other, nothing else is. Highlighted here because they weren't so. If it is on, here's where sometimes you're going to get confused. Branch not equal to do something if the bit is on. It's not equal to zero. You're going to have to really think that what that means. If, if something's on, branch is not equal. It doesn't say it's not equal to being on. It's just not equal to the results of this this instruction. Yeah, that's one thing. One thing, other thing I want to point out for some people, um, I mean, there is a compare instruction. Now it's redundant in this case if if you're an optimizing programmer type thing, um, but you can also do a compare a with you know zero or compare a with 
8.0 in this case or something like that, and then do the branch then too. And sometimes that's a bit more logical to, to see and read when you're first learning. But the shortcut is, is that basically anytime you do any sort of a math or a logical ending instruction, et cetera, it sets the uh, the zero flag as it's called. Basically, it'll know if that result was zero or not instantly. You don't you don't have to do a compare. But I do know that you know when I first started, I always put compares there just because it, it worked in my brain better. Going you know compare a with zero, or compare a with eight zero in this case, and you could tell whether or not that bit was set. So maybe for some people that might be a bit easier to always use the compare rather than just going straight to the branch if they haven't quite grokked what that is yet. Well, yeah, yeah. The problem with that is if you was if you're looking to see if that bid is on, like last last time we were together, in that one table array we had set up, we had the high order bit of bit seven was on, saying it was the last entry. If you want to test if that's the last entry, you still have to mask it off because you can't compare it like this eight a. No, I meant to compare after the end before the B and E. Oh, okay, okay. I, sometimes I, that's just a little bit easier for somebody to to know what it's doing. Okay. Without having to look up like what what flags get set on this particular instruction because you know an AND doesn't do the same ones as an ADD doesn't do the same ones as an LEAX or whatever so right the branch not equal is not equal is not this here it's is not equal to that zero flag right yeah. here we're going to test multiple bits okay only works if both are off okay we load A with that eight A we're going to test to see if bits two uh, if two bits are on seven and one. So we'll end it, and sure enough, they do the one, one, and one, one, so they're both gone. And here we're going to branch it equal because bits are on. Right? Again, it might be easier if you did the compare afterwards when you first start out because this can be very confusing when you read it. That's why I put this in capital letters. The one time here we branch not equal, and one time we're branching equal. That's why you have to really think through these. I mean, it's it's no other way to to uh, explain it other than maybe what uh, is, is do the compare. So for my my sanity, when I get myself into something like this, I tend to put an example in the comments around that so that I can remind myself later that I was doing this and this is what I expected and why. Sure. Yeah, that definitely helps. Yep. <laughs> also, a comment from Paul okay. Shoemaker, and this is kind of going to what I was mentioning earlier. He said, I just learned something. I didn't know you could do a conditional branch without doing a compare first. I was in the same boat when I started. I had no idea this, these flags were automatically set on all those instructions. So any of you that have six set on programming assembly language books, whether it's Leventhal's or Barden's or Darren Atkinson's, if you take a look at the, uh, the pages for each of the instructions, it'll tell you that instruction exactly which bits it will affect. And then you can use the branches shortcutting without doing a compare first to act on those. But as a beginner and just being able to look at the code and understand fully what's going on, I would probably tend to use the compares at least until you get used to them. Yes, that would, that, it does make it easier. Once, once you get used to them, you know, once you understand them, and they are they are confusing to start with. Like say one time we did a branch not equal, one time we did a branch equal. Okay, so just, the best yeah. thing I can do is write yourself some code very short little program and do these instructions the load A's and A's and then branch equal, branch not equal, and just write yourself a bunch of tests and say, oh, okay, you know, and you could branch to someplace that would print something on the screen. Okay. 
Okay, now if you want to test these, this was tested two bits ago. Test a bit again here. Uh, this time here, we're going to test to see if bit zero is on. Right, we hit load A with that. Same A, we're going to test that very far one over to bit zero. In this case here, it's not on. It is not on, so we don't we don't get that one. Yep. In in this case, neither the, the original eight A you loaded nor the one you're ending it with has any common bits turned on in any of them. So the result will be zero. Everything will be up. Juniper. So on, after go. this Decide. instruction is executed, the zero flag will not be set. Okay. So branch not equal to something that is not on. So it is equal to zero. I got him. I'm making it more confusing. But now you do that compare in there. Again, do the compare, and you can find out exactly if it is zero. If it is zero, you can branch equal. Yeah, it's definitely more readable. I mean, if you're writing, you know, the most optimized code because you're doing some high-speed game, you'll, you'll be doing what George is showing here instead pretty well every time because it, it, it saves it having to execute instruction entirely, so it, it runs faster. But it's a little harder to understand for a beginner. Well, yeah, for I would say for a beginner, I'm just so used to it. After so many years, I'm just used to it. It's just there, here's what the yeah, it's second condition. nature. <laughs> I'm the same way. <laughs> yeah, here's the, what the condition, the zero flag is, and just branch based on it. All right, uh, you're just wanting to clear bits, okay? You're not going to test. You just want to clear some bits. For some reason, you went through routine. I went through this routine, and I had a flag set. And when I leave the routine, I want to set that flag off. So I did. So I know next time I come into this routine. We'll just and we'll leave and a with this here. What this here is a seven F. Okay, it's just testing every bit will will stay the same other than the one having a zero on. So anything that was on had one up here and one down here is going to fall right through as these bits. So the only thing that's going to change is this one bit seven. Because it had a zero and it doesn't have a one and one, so therefore it's, that's how you turn a bit off. Yeah, actually, George, can you scroll back up just to, uh, so we can see that whole first page? I just want to mention something here. No, 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 not that far. Just that page we were on. Uh, yeah, right there. The test and test bits and stuff. Uh, one thing I want to mention here um, that might make it a bit easier for you to understand, uh, you know, how the bits work is consider this to be graphics. Like a P mode four screen, one bit is one pixel on or off. So a zero means it's black and the one means it's white. So you can see, you can actually use what George is doing here to say load something off the screen rather than say hard coder one, then doing an and to test to see is, you know, within the eight pixels in a byte is the, like in his test bit example here, if bit seven's on. So if you loaded the very first byte of the P mode four graphics screen, for example, and you did the load A from the very beginning of the screen, the AND day he's doing here would tell you is the first pixel lit up. And then when you go to the other ones, you can test to see are these two pixels within a byte uh, you know, lit up. And then is testing one at the very bottom of this page uh, where he's actually checking to see is the first pixel lit up. So you can actually use this to say collision detection. You know, is there something there that the player just ran into type thing? So that's this is actually a nice representation. If you're doing a two-color graphic screen, then the bits are exactly pixels. And sometimes it's a bit easier to understand if you actually fiddle with the graphics. You can see the results in, in bit form, basically. You can see the pixel moving around if you say you start you know, setting pixel 2 or bit 2 or bit 3 or bit 4. You can actually see it moving around. So that visual cue, that visual aid might help in understanding how the bits work. Yes. So much for uh, AMD. Let's try logical R. 
and remember and was this and that have to be both on or something good but this one here is either or here's a basic example that one zero one zero zero one one zero and it works out if they're both on or i'm sorry if they're either one of them is a one it becomes a one i can't believe this is bad that should be a one right there so excuse the typo that's who it is it should be one so if it's either it's either either or if, it, if either one has a is on it falls down through the on yeah. So if, if the first one's on, and this or the second one is on, it'll be on. Or if they're both on, it's on. The only time it comes out as a zero is if both are zero. Right. That's typo there. That first. Zero. Yeah. That, that first digit. Yeah. Or here it is in, in binary form. Okay. We take these numbers. Anything that has a anything has a one is going to be get turned on, regardless if there's it's together's not. It's either or. All right, to set a bit on, you just, here's your original, you load up your original and your R with the bit you want to turn on. And what your result is that this turned on plus that one's your same because you didn't, they aren't touched because they're, they're, they're already on. Yep. And, and as a graphical representation, say we're doing the first byte of the graphic screen again, basically what you have here is you load it up the screen and you've got the two pixels turned on near the right of the byte. You're oring on the first bit. And then when you draw it back to the screen, now the first pixel will be lit up again, but the other two will still be lit up because you ordered them together. Right. Well, this one here we probably should skip. I don't want this one really confused with exclusive R. Okay. And the comment here is one or the other, but not both. All right. An example there. This is, I'm trying to read ahead the example correctly. Okay. So if there's Either are, but not both. The very last one over here, these two are both wrong, so it turns out to be a zero. The second one in, one and a zero is a one. Zero and a one is a one. Two ones or two zeros make it a zero. When you use it, I very seldom have ever used it. I have, but very, very rarely. You have to really think through to be able to use it. And in a Bigger example with our full byte, okay? Everything that had one in it, it's turned on, except for this one here where they're both on. Again, one or the other, but not both. Don't reckon explain it. I, it's hard to phantom them how, how to use it. I remember I've used it way back when, but I, I, I can give you an example. Good. Uh, it's, it's used a lot in graphics, actually. Um, Exclusive oring a bit, and we'll go to the single pixel P mode 4 thing again, means basically you're flipping the state of the bit. So if it was a 1 becomes a 0, if it was a 0 becomes a 1 if you or those E or those 1 specifically. So for example, if you do an E or FF, which is basically saying exclusive or all the bits, it'll invert it. So anything that was white becomes black, anything that was black becomes white. So if you want to inverse your screen, you would E or FF the entire screen. Okay. Exclusive or is also good for some classes of random number or pseudo random number generators. Yes. I've seen it actually used for uh, basically painting on a screen and then replacing with the original background um, so that you can uh, draw like a sprite of some sort and then put it back. Yeah, it's used for background masking and stuff. 
I, I use it a fair bit for flags. Like if I have a, a byte that has eight bits and each bit means a different thing, like, you know, the player's dead, the player is like shot in the air, whatever. Yeah. And if I want to toggle whatever it is to the opposite state, not knowing what it is, like I, I if it's on, I want it to switch to off. If it's off, I want to switch it to on, but I don't know what it is. And rather than doing a load and a compare and a bunch of other things, you can just exclusive or that one bit and it'll just flip it back and forth from whatever it is to the other opposite state. Okay. Test bit. I didn't put much in there because I, I, I don't use test bit, so. Yeah, t test bit, I, I can give an explanation on this one in a little yeah. bit too. Um, there's a couple cases I use it. Um, there's a couple of bit flags that the test will set. Uh, the zero flags once so you can instantly check. And by the way, this is a, a smaller, faster instruction than a compare. So if you only need to check is something zero or not zero, it's actually a little bit faster. If you want to check if something is minus, that it sets the minus flag. Now, sign numbers, I don't know if we really got into that much, but sign numbers in binary basically means the high bit is set or zero. If it's zero, it's a positive number. If it's a high bit is a one, it's a negative number. This also sets on that too. So you can do a branch if minus, which basically says, is this a negative number? Now, you don't have to treat it as uh, a sign 8-bit number. You might just set bit flags like I was talking earlier, where every bit means something. You can do a test to see if the zero flag set, which means none of the bits are set, or if you do a test and then do a branch of minus or branch of plus, that'll tell you if the high bit is set or not. So this is a slightly faster way to check a few specific conditions. Um, I usually use it for the high bit and whether it's you know, no bits or all bits are on, and you can do a couple of quick tests that way. And if you set your bit flags at your most common ones, are either the minus or you know everything's off, you can actually speed up your code a little bit. So it, it does get used, but yeah, it's, it's probably not as often as the actual okay. ands and ors and eors type thing. Here's another uh, thing for testing bits is, is bit A or bit B works in register. The same as and in it, but the register is not destroyed. Or up here we did this anding. The register is destroyed. This is the result. This is what's in the register after we do that. If we loaded it up, this A day, we did the test. Here's what we end up with this in the register. So yeah. everything else is destroyed. If you use a, a bit A or bit B, it does the exact same thing. Now, all you're looking for is that zero flag register. So you do it. Less instructions. It's it's just as fast as and a, and you just don't destroy the register. Yeah, this this is most useful if you're doing bit flags again, like I was talking. Let's say every bit means something. If you do the and version, you you load it in, you and it to check for say bit five first, and let's say the next part of the code is going to check bit four, then bit three, bit two, all individually because you're doing different things depending on what it's doing. If you use the and version, you have to keep reloading the original one back over and over again because you've wiped it out doing the and a or and b. In this case here, you can do all those tests in a row and it leaves the original. So you don't have to reload it every time. You just load A from wherever once. Then you do a bit A for eight zero. I'm checking the high bit. And do whatever you have to do based on the high bit. And then you can immediately do a bit A four zero, which is bit six, the second bit in from the left-hand side. And then you can start doing everything there. You don't have to reload it every time. So it's definitely a time saver and it makes your program smaller and faster for those, those conditions. Hence the comment, same as and A or B, register is not destroyed. Stays there until you reload the register, do something else to it. Yeah. Complement. Complement A or B. Okay. It just exactly just it just flips the bits. That's all it does. Yeah. I will mention a complement A or B is a shortcut, a smaller, faster version of doing an exclusive or FF. 
which does the exact same thing. Yep. Negate, okay, get negative A, negative B. Okay, it's a two's complement. It basically flips the bit. And a two's complement, if you read about what a two's complement, it will flip the bits. But the, the ending result is these two must will end up as, as a zero if you add them together. You have to, you're going to get farther along in programming before you ever need to use this. Yeah, this this is basically if you're doing math, like if you're treating the registers as actual yep. signed, you know, plus and minus numbers, that's what this is meant. If you have a positive five, it'll change it to the equivalent of a negative five in binary. If you have a negative five, it'll change it to a positive five. Um, I mean, you could do it the old, you know, the, the long way of doing the actual complement and add one, et cetera, which is basically what it's doing internally in the six and nine itself, but this is a much easier way to do it. <laughs> and last instruction is clear. Speaks for itself. Just want to clear the register. Clear egg, clear beer. It just it's, clears it out and you got your zeros. Future discussions, logical shifts, arithmetic shift left, rights, roll. We'll, we'll look at them in the future. Not, yeah. Not in today's. Uh... That's a whole discussion by itself. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. Let me uh, get back to my other screen. Okay, now we're going to talk some uh, about some, some macros that, that deal with some of those. Uh, oops, yeah. some deal with some of the instructions. So I need to bring. Uh, this screen up and put this on turn this off. Yeah, excuse me, I got too many screens here. I need. Uh, Text tab. Nope. See a listing. Is that what you're looking for? There it is. Ah, okay. Macros. Okay. If you want to use macros, to help some of the confusion. And I'm, I'd say I'm using the, the emulator and LW tools, so it's definitely a macro somewhere. Macros are an easy way of doing repetitive stuff that you do. And if you makes it easier for doing some things. So I just put together some sum just to show you how they work. You can use them or not, or build your own, but at least you'll, you'll have them. I put them into a, a, a little file I call MacLab, okay, Cocoa MacLab, and it needs to be in, but you also have to have the, uh, our includes file we've used in the past couple weeks. And I'll show you why, because here I add all this bit stuff to the, our other uh, include library, all the bit. Okay, and I call this one here underscore bit all, which is all the bits are on. Uh, never use this one, but it's called bit none, which means it's all zero. And if you just want to just use these in, in some way, each bit, like bit four, bit four. So it makes it much easier to understand. All right, first one we got here is set bit on. Parameters are either register A or B and the bit number. Okay, so I'm calling SBON or set bit on. Put the word macro in there, and here's the instruction to or. This backslash one is the very first parameter. The very first parameter you're going to give it is either an A or a B. And 
over here is the rest of the instruction, pound site underscore bit and the bit number. Okay, so this this here is going to end up looking like if I can find which one it is. Okay. If we actually do one of these, here, here's this S bit on, okay? We just put A and 4 in there, and here's the instruction it drops, it, it comes up with. 4A, pound sign, underscore bit 4, set bit on. Doesn't do much for you, but it's a macro, and if you don't remember how to use some of these things, it will help you. Yeah, it's a bit more Englishy. Yep. There were too many pages, okay. So anyway, that, that's what it's got. That's what it looks like. And we'll look at all the examples over there. Another one I got is uh, SB off or set bit off. Basically the same thing. The params are register A or B and a bit number. And we're going to AND A. First parameter was going to be the A or the B. And then here's the rest of the instruction, okay? Remember to set a bit off. All we have to have all, we want to keep all the other bits on. So we put all bits minus bit and the bit number you put in there. But we'll just set off one bit and we'll look at the example later on. The other one here is branch bit on. Okay, now this might help you in your coding to start with when we get through all that is the zero side flat and all the compares. You do that bit instruction or the farms, I'm sorry, the farms are read A or B, the bit number, and a branch two. What do you want a branch two? So we got bit, either A or B, actual bit number and a branch not equal to the third parameter, which is wherever you want to go. Branch bit off, same exact as, as the other one, is this is the branch uh, it's off. A couple more I put on there. If you ever get into where you want to turn the, the interrupts off, there's a macro that just INT off. Okay, there's a macro it's or CC. We never talked about that when we were talking about the other OR instruction, which OR uh, condition code register. So to turn the interrupts off, we're going to turn off bit 6 plus bit 4, and that will disable the interrupts. We turn them back on, it's INT on, and condition code register. Bit all, which is the all, all uh, 8 bits, minus bit 6, minus bit 4. And we'll show you an example on the next screen. So I've put together this program for today to do this to test this stuff, okay? So we've got, we included our uh, uh, normal includes, and I include the MacLive. And the MacLive, Mac I got it in, in this somewhere. I forgot to turn it turn it back on just to turn them out so we don't get to see them here. Uh, let's look at what the macros showed up on. S-bit S on, we put A and 4, and we got R bit 4. Branch bit on, if A is 4 on, if the source on, go a routine I call do on. It here's the instructions it put up. Remember that this doesn't do anything in your code. There's nothing there. That's just the macro. Here's the code it, it, it puts out for you. Tell me these line numbers. So it does a bit A, which is a test of register A for bit 4. And it actually puts out here in the comments it will put the correct bit up for you. And branch not equal to the routine bit on. If not, it would just fall through and do some other stuff. 
Uh, let's look at the other, some of the other ones. Okay, branch bit off of the same thing. Here, here I'm just manually uh, turned the, uh, all of it bits on minus bit four. Okay, so that, that's what it would look like. Branch if bit four is off. Where you register B this time. So B for branch routine called do off one. Instructions it drops out is bit B, test bit four, branch sequel. So this might help you in your coding to start with if you don't, if you're not, you don't have to worry about doing uh, testing of what bit and just put the, use the macro. And there, there was, there all of them was a set bit on, set bits off. I'll go through them in a bit. The other thing I'll show you over here right now. Does not execute below because here was the end, here's the end of the program. Return back to basic. I put these in to show how they expand whenever you put that interrupts off. It just actually puts out that instru uh, instruction and interrupts on. Here's the instruction it puts out. And they both come out okay and look good. So just to show you what they look like, you can use them. Okay, what this program is going to do, it's going to test these actual routines and see if they work. This is what I put them together see how they work. We are did 1,000. very first thing we're going to do is branch to test one, which is right here. And in between here, we've got uh, uh, the two-byte uh, thing called patch. Because we're going to patch this program later on. This is the patch address. is going to be right there. We're going to patch it from basic. I'm going to show you how. Which I think will be helpful, especially if you're not using the emulator and you want to test some stuff, and you may be on a Purple One too. Help you out. And what we're going to do, all right, now what we do is we're going to load up a, a message. We're going to jump and put it on the screen. We're going to clear out A. We're going to set bit on. Then we're going to branch if bit is on. We've set it on. We know what it is, but we're going to test our macro routine. So we're going to branch if bit on to do on. We do the test and it will branch down to do one down here. If it doesn't work, it will fall through, load up something called bad message, branch to subroutine, it will print it, and then it will branch down onto test two, which is right here. So, in other words, if this all works, we're going to print if it worked on the screen, if it didn't work, we're going to print it bad on the screen. Test two is very similar. We're going to use register B this time. I'm going to set bit four on, we're going to branch bit four, a branch of bit off, bit four. Alexa, what's my notification? Off one. We have one and two, we got two tests here. The same exact logic as before, we test it and branch off, if not, it falls through. And if it's good, it gets down here and it prints a good, a good message. Test two, load up a message again, clear B, set all the Set, we're setting all the bits on, which drives out to put it puts a bit on. Then we're going to set a bit off. We're just doing something a little bit different time. We're going to set bit four off. It puts out a, a code of A and B, all bits. So it's turning off bit four. And then we're going to do our branch, branch of bit off. Same thing as the other one. If it, if it worked, it's going to print a good message. It's not print a bad message. The only thing different here is we've got this word patch. Remember up there at the top? So it's patch. The, the address of patch is right here at 103F. And the code there is C4EF. You remember that. So 103F is, see it? 
And when we put our program together, patch was 103 up. Now, basic, we'll not be able to find that because we already at 1,000. So I'm going to show you the basic program here in a second. Rest of the program is just our normal stuff, okay? Here's our print routine. Here's the messages we're going to print. Now, if I can find the correct screen. Yeah, I can get to it over here. Show up better here if we, ex we execute it. Okay, there was our test. The only reason I'm doing it here in this 80 character screen, I forgot about uh, the basic screen. I used uh, lowercase letters and you can hardly read it when it's on the other screen. So there was our test. Okay, it all worked. The first one, the, the test one, it should be on. The result was a bit off. Test two should have been off to come up off. The, the second test of two was off. Okay, now list our basic program. It, remember our uh, patch was at hex 1002. So we're going to get that address out of there, which was that, I told you remember that uh, C4EF was, well, no, 103F was here. So then we're going to peek at 103F and get the, the address of where that patch thing is. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna change this program right now. Okay, so that, that's what the first part is, is it got that address at 103F out of the assembly language program. So now we know exactly what to get out, get out of there, where we can modify it. The other thing we're gonna do is you're gonna patch it my cursor hardly shows up over there. See, we're going to either patch it or restore it. Our N key, if it's, if it's a patch, go to 120, and we're going to poke, poke a hex 112, which is a no-op, and another 12, which is another no-op. A no-op is an instruction that what it does. It's no operation. It does nothing. It's, I think it costs two machine cycles, which everything does. And it just lets you, it's good for if you're testing. It's good for other things. If you've got a big array or a set of tables that are all, all on equal boundaries that can compile a program. So anybody can you put a no-op in to bump it by to line stuff up in memory. Or in this case, what I'm using it for now, I'm going to skip over the instructions. It's good when you're good for when you're testing. If you've got a routine that doesn't work all the time, you can just put no-ops in there and skip over it for the time being. And you can patch it back in on the fly is what we're going to do. So we're going to uh, run this program, and it's going to say you want to patch it or restore it. We're going to we're going to patch it. Okay, we patched it, and the patches is do not execute the instructions, which was our test. Let's okay. Test failed. 
we can go back to which one was it? Right, we can go back there to where Patch was. Right, here was Patch. Okay, here's this 103F. We change them that instructions them to that instruction there to 1212, which is two no ops. So it did not do this and. It didn't set that bit off. So then we, the next thing we did was branch the bit off. Okay, it, it failed that test, so it come down here and prints out the bad message. So if we run it again and we say restore that instruction, okay, it did, we execute it. This is just a, a way if you were testing stuff uh, in the beginner, it may help you in how to do things, how you can patch stuff, get around things. I used it in the past. I still use it because you can test. I mean, use, use the emulator. You don't, you can manually do it yourself. I can just bring up. Uh, yeah, like a main debugger or something see, like that. See, here's, here's the main debugger. I'm just bringing up the window. Okay. And here's our, if you look at our instructions over here, whoops, I'm on the wrong screen. There's our C4EF. Our address is 103F, but it had C4EF, okay? I could just come in here with the this here, and I can just type in 1212. So I just put the no-op instructions in there, and we're, uh, we're good to go. So it, it's just, it's, if you don't have, you've not used the emulator, it's a good way to test things. So, you know, you can sit back and think, well, oh, okay, I could change, I could change an instruction, I could be able to branch someplace, I can turn off routines, I can turn them back on. And back in the old days, when we worked on, I worked on mainframes way, way, way back in the 60s, okay, that had 32K, a mainframe from the factory, 32K, and every bit was very essential. Uh, we modified program, you modify your program on the fly. You'd have you turn turn routines on and off by putting no ops in where you didn't. It, it's just, it was amazing the things we had to do. And when we get into network controllers, it was unbelievable. Everything was done with bits on the network back then. This was, this was before ethernet and before the internet. Okay, this was back when IBM mainframes run SNA, Bisync and et cetera, et cetera, and on these controllers. We had to run, you know, timings on them because uh, there was no CRT screens. Everything was on a, a, a typewriter type or a teletype based uh, terminal. For the ones I worked with a lot was a called 1980-9. It was an IBM, what about it was an I, you know, IBM selector typewriter. Typewriters had the ball that swiveled around and bang, 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 bang. That's what, that's what this 1980-9 uh, terminal was. It was that and it had a 75 baud modem in it. And 75 baud was as fast as things went back in the 60s, early 70s. And to get that ball, when you got down the end of a line and you did a return, you know, return uh, line feed, you had to send out, if I'm correct, I think we sent out 17 idles because that was the time it took that ball to go from one end of the carriage to get back to the end. So I guess I'm getting carried away on stuff that you may not be interested in, but that's, that's what, but everything was done by a bet because we didn't have any memory. I mean, it was just, the uh, memory was expensive and, and 32K, you had to write a lot of code. I remember 
one time I wrote a program, well, I didn't write a program, I shouldn't say it, but I wrote a program, which I worked, wrote a program in COBOL, which is a very, very expensive for eating machines up, uh, as far as uh, space. He wrote the program, the uh, editing, uh, punch cards. He wrote this program and it took almost the whole 32K. He, he didn't have enough room to write the results out. The program was so big. So enough for old time stuff. Uh, so your patch technique that you're using here, yes. uh, when you look at a lot of the retro games from the era, that use assembly language speed ups and basic for the main game logic, you'll yep. run into this a lot. And so yep. you end up uh, having to understand the structure of the assembly side to then decode what the basic side was doing. And you'll find that the game logic can change that way. The game that I'm porting right now does this exact same thing to turn on and off whether the uh, monster moves after you. So yep. the basic game just goes and says, oh, change this address. And now the monster just sits there because it put an RTS in place. And then yep. later it puts the address to the move routine back and then it jumps and goes and chases you again. And you'll, you'll see this in a bunch of different games from the era if you're looking at bringing them over onto the Coco. Wow. Yep. Yeah, and actually some of the games on the Coco still have that. Like if you if you have the commercial Rogue by Epix, the Tandy sold the Coco 3, there is a, a branch never command in there that has the entire debug mode where you can like create your own objects, create your own monsters, all the stuff they use for debugging internally. And by default, when you buy it, it's disabled completely. A branch never means it'll never take that branch. If you do a two byte or one byte patch to change it to a branch always, then you enable the entire debug mode and then you have certain key sequences that do things. So that, that was actually left in the original game. The entire debug mode's in the current row. Yeah, back back in the day, I know we used uh, very similar stuff on the on the mainframe side. It was just, it just you know, they say you could just change one instruction and no op to an RTS and get out of the routine. You know, get out of the routine early without having to do any extra repairs. Just change the one instruction and way it go. Yeah, and it's also very handy because the other way to do it, the quote unquote legitimate way, would be you know change the program and try it a, you know the different way, changing whatever code. But that means you have to reassemble the thing every single time you want to make a minor change. But this way, you can have it loaded up and just do a couple of pokes, and then you can you know, test it the other way without having to reassemble the whole thing. Well, in the later stages in some of the shop I worked at was the mainframe. We had. Uh, a patch area is like kind of like they did with uh, Coco Three. Put these all these patch areas in there. We'd leave a, a series of uh, cut out a piece of memory, which is called a patch area, and leave basically no ops sitting in the middle of the program with certain routines where you could branch out of routines if you had code change. Because we were up servicing you know forty fifty thousand terminals in Canada and Mexico and in the United States. And we were up 24 seven. So you couldn't just take stuff down. You had to patch it on the fly. So we could patch stuff in the patch area, put a branch instruction in the middle of the program and keep on going. But we'd always have, we'd always have no ops in certain places in certain key programs so we could get out of there and fix it. We had, we couldn't step, couldn't come down. We run, you know, around the clock, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. So it's kind of interesting the things you learn how to do, uh, hide stuff. Yeah, I think it's called hot patching or something now, isn't it? We do it on, while the program's yeah, running on the fly. Yep. 
Well, our system was built for it, okay? It was the same program that the airlines use, okay? And in high-speed connections, you know, we could run, you know, 30, 40,000 transactions a second. So but we, it was high-speed that stayed up. Like, the airlines are up around the clock because they're running, you know, globally. And it was built for it. You could, so the programs were all re-entrant. They were locked in memory. They could phase in and phase out. And if that program, that segment had to be in there, you could put a lock on it for it have the patch ready to go, and it could be locked in for. It, we're talking about a, you know, 250 milliseconds to be locked while your patch went into it. You'd have patch in another segment, and you'd hit this, say, just lock this program, and it, it would lock it. It flipped the new code into it, the patches into it, then unlock it right away within you know within 250 milliseconds. So we had it down as a science. Of course, it was already been tested on another complete another test another test machine. But learn your bits if you're going to do a assembly language program. That's all I can tell you. Yeah, you'll need it for graphics. You'll need it for sound. You'll need it for logic. You'll need it for all kinds of things. Yep. I think I'm done. Cool. We're probably going with something, but I think that's enough for today. We don't like I said we don't want to run this thing too long. Yeah, because otherwise it becomes just overwhelming. <laughs> Awesome stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's a, I don't know. I just, it, I had, that's why I said fun on a color computer because it was just, it was just fun to sit there and go and write stuff half the night, you know, doing stuff. You have a teaser for what, what you're going to be doing next week? Not at all. Oh, okay. <laughs> I've been, keep them surprised. I've been bit busy with stuff, grandkids and stuff like that. And I, did, last week I had, they were, they were here and I just had to do stuff. So, yeah, I guess I will be surprised. If anybody's got any suggestions, you know, we'll just, other than that, we'll move on with something. Trying to keep it simple and kind of keep it, you know, we're going to keep it on a text screen where the results will show up with it. But anybody that's interested, if they just look at this uh, program that we just went through, this this DN01, it's all out there on, on Discord, okay, the programs. I always put them out there in the, the macro live and stuff like that. And that is such a little program that does, does, lot for your testing and say oh maybe maybe to turn a trigger on and a beginner say oh okay i understand that and take and expand that program or make another copy and add to what we did last week the only way you're going to learn this stuff is get out there and do it believe me you can sit there and read every book in the world and you'll just say wow i read the book but until you actually screw your machine up two or three times and reboot it half thousand times you know that's how you're going to learn any of these languages especially assembly language again i suggest you use the emulator to learn because it's very easy and you can look in memory and see exactly what's going on all right all right awesome sounds good look forward to the next segment thanks yeah, george I'll, uh, dream up something <laughs> all right awesome all right, Ron Davo. Right, until next week. Bye. Thanks a lot, George. Thanks, George. All right, Ron, this is for you. Potty break time. Grant, you're muted. <laughs> I was going to say, hey, Ron, this is for you. It's potty break time. We're going to do a commercial now. <laughs> it's uh, having, I need coffee. Sounds good. All right, coffee break, potty break, or uh, in it. my case, was to take the dog outside break. So, all right, we'll be back in a couple minutes. Here is a commercial. Let's do. 
We'll do this one. Here's a hi-fi bargain from your nearby Radio Shack store. Save $100 on our exclusive realistic 77 AM-FM stereo receiver. Only $159.95 during the sale. With audio component features like FM muting, push-button tape monitor, main remote speaker switching, in a genuine walnut veneer case. The ideal control center for your new music system. The sale-priced realistic 77 receiver. Only at Radio Shack. A Tandy company. Tired of your color computer art input device being low res? Joey has you covered again. Switch between three joysticks or mice. Select the left or right port on your Coco. No more swapping joystick ports. Switch between standard and high resolution mode. Supports the Tandy and the Max high resolution mode. Pre-order yours today at CocoMan.biz. The music is back. The mini ice cream available now. Only from Retro Innovations. Go the number four retro.com. Watcher, I don't need that report tomorrow. That's great, JT. I need it tonight. Oh, JT. Let your lack saved over 300 clams, you dig? When she got her a Model 100 from Radio Shack, like a good little consumer. It's like a word processor, a phone directory and dialer, you dig, man? And even like, you know, can groove with your office computer. Fletcher? Fletcher. You'll go far, Fletcher. You'll go far. ESP 8266-01 RS232 TTL Wi-Fi Network 4-pin DIN Fitbanger DB9 PC IP DriveWire 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 Oh, I'm much happier breaking stuff. Hello, I am the speech and sound pack, and you are listening to Colcol Talk. And now, Coco Thoughts by Samuel Gimes. Whirlybird's been round, and you bomb the ground. When the target is in range, you know what I'm talking about. Just let me know if you want to go and scramble for game got a nice fuel tax have mercy when you drop a dime mountain to climb and the cave you 
get yourself in <clears throat> and take your flight to every fight and get your confidence shaken. <clears throat> Alright, we are now back. We went ahead and played the Coco Thoughts there because unfortunately I forgot to share the sound there with the uh, panel. So what did you guys think about that? The singing was horrible as usual, but it was it was on target. And, and the dedication to Dusty Hill of ZZ Top, who just yes. passed away this past week, was, was a nice touch because that, that was sad news. Yep, I agree. Hey, and Nick is here with us, I see. Hey, Nick. Hey, how are you? You finally woke up over there, huh? Or down yeah. there, down there, I should say. <laughs> the show starts a bit earlier, and I'm still asleep. Yeah, well, well, you know, we just fired Stevie, so uh, we might have to adjust the time a little bit now. <laughs> All right, cool. What do you think about that, uh, Nick Moroda? Oh, I thought it was great. I like the how, how, how. That was it, right there. It's it's one part that Gimes actually can sing semi properly too, so that's nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, cool. All right, we I guess we'll go ahead and do the game on news here. So let me switch that over real quick. All right. All right, guys, go ahead and do the game on news, and we'll be ready to go. Okay. Make sure I got the right window share here. You guys seen that? Okay, so Jim Gary, our MC10 expert, has been a busy boy this last week. He's cranked out a ton of stuff. So the first batch here is going to be all him. So the first one here is called Spacebar Band, and you can see by the REM statements on the screen here, this is a port from a Cocoa game from Australian Cocoa, Volume 1, Number 4, from 1984. Now, Nick Morandi, since you're Australian, I thought I'd ask you, Australian Cocoa, was that a rival to Rainbow, or what exactly was that? Um, it was way back the uh in order to release the american rainbow magazine cheaper because it used to cost a lot of money to import the there was a company that did uh, had had some contract with rainbow to be able to reproduce some of the uh or much of the content from an american rainbow it was a it was a black and white um much more cheaply made magazine and it was called the rainbow or the australian rainbow um, and then later on, and, and what did you say that was called? Australian Rainbow or Australian Cocoa? Australian Cocoa. Yeah. So later on, they decided, well, rather than keep bringing in and licensing American Rainbow content, we'll create an Australian version of the Rainbow as such, and we'll call it Australian Cocoa. So it was... Australian content then, none, none of the American content. And then, of course, they didn't have to pay whatever licensing there was for the articles. So it was an Australian uh, version of the Rainbow magazine with Australian content instead. It was, I seem to recall there was an Australian Rainbow too, so it wasn't... Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the Australian Rainbow was the one that had licensed the American Rainbow articles. So it was a cheaper way of getting the American Rainbow. It basically so instead of had, importing it, they just basically got the articles from Rainbow yeah, Falsoft right. and just did their own version in Australia. Exactly. So it was cheaper, and they didn't have the adverts. There was none of the adverts from the Rainbow. It was just articles. 
Um, so it was a cheaper way of getting getting um, Australian, like getting rainbow in Australia. You okay. could still get the American Rainbow. You know, it was still that big glossy magazine, but it was like you know ten dollars or whatever um, back then, and it was uh, yeah, you know, it cost issue. a lot of money. <laughs> Whereas these other ones were you know half the price. But yeah, there was always the intent to have an Australian version, and that's what the Australian Coco was. Okay. That's cool. A little bit of history on that too, because that means we had even more Coco dedicated magazines than I thought. Because I had heard of Australian <laughs> Rainbow, and I just figured, yeah, you know, they, I, I did figure they'd print it themselves because shipping overseas to Australia would have been prohibitively expensive. But I figured they would just, you know, transmit via modem the articles and they would just reprint them and print the magazine in Australia. I didn't realize they actually had like their own programs in some of it and their own ads and everything else. So yeah, no, it was an Australian version. Yeah. And I think those issues are available on the uh, Coco archive. Yeah, I now remember. that I know that they actually did a lot of original content that wasn't the same as the Rainbow, like yeah. had some of their own stuff. I'm gonna have to go check those out. I actually just presumed it was always just the, the reissue, so I never realized no, that, that no. it was. Yeah. So anyway, the first game he converted here from the Australian Coco magazine, 1984, Spacebar Bandit, which is kind of a, a low-res slot machine where you can spin through the symbols in the middle here, and then if you get your, you know, two of a kind, three of a kind, you get your win. Press Spacebar. So it's a very simple game, but it's a kind of effective as a as a slot machine. Next one here is another Australian one uh, by a program by Alan Bridges from the September 1984 issue. And this is one that is uh, an educational one to figure out the capital cities of Australia. So we're going to put Nick on the spot as part of the oh, quiz today. Here we today. go again. Definitely don't uh, ask Stevie this. <laughs> okay, so... Nick, let's test your own geography here. Out of those numbers, that's where the capital cities are. Which one is Hobart? Hobart is uh, five. Tasmania. Tasmania. Is he correct, folks? Yes. <laughs> I should make him take the whole damn thing, but I won't. <laughs> you are correct. <laughs> <laughs> now, I do know there was Crikey. a comment. <laughs> I do know there was a comment that somebody had mentioned that one of them, and I'm not remember which one it was, but they said the positioning on the map's a little off. It should be moved a bit. So there's a reissue of this program. I think he did a couple of days later. Uh, yeah, I wonder which one he. Yeah, yeah. I think is it. It's the nation's it capital. Three. Kind of, yeah, three. It's like is that Canberra. I, I assume. Yeah, exactly. I assume three is meant to be Canberra. Or Canberra, yeah, that's, uh, and it's it's a little right. bit more inland. He's showing it like it's a coastal city. It's not. And it ah, okay. Be north also. Yeah, a bit north. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, here, there's Mike, a real Mark says two and three should be a bit higher. Was it entered correctly? <laughs> yeah, probably two and three. But don't forget that's a text screen. So maybe, you know, when you move it up, it moves a lot up. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's true. He he did say though he he did change it, so it must look better with with yeah, the change yeah. positions. So. Definitely, I think three if it's canberra it should be a little bit more inland okay anyway for those who want to you know learn about nick's homeland here's the <laughs> program for you just make sure you get the updated version so that they're actually in the right spot of course you didn't <laughs> ask which one am i at are you in one of the capital Two. cities yes Two. yes number, number one, one. No, number oh one. i think you had some tie-ins with jim gary there to make sure that your city was number one <laughs> 
it's kind of cool he's, he's been converting some australian cocoa stuff because like i said i didn't realize they actually had different sets of programs so i just thought it was a reprint of the rainbow where's danielle at uh he's um he's a bit more oh no he's six. in adelaide so it's six yeah now there's a cocoa user oh, in seven she, which is sorry perth, right <laughs> sorry seven's perth or what jason one? seven is perth yeah yeah one Oh, right. Yeah, that's who it was. Because I do remember we had some people spread all over Australia. Now, number eight, which one is that? Uh, that's Darwin? Darwin. Is there anybody Cocoa Wise in Darwin? that uh, uh, I don't know of any. <laughs> you seem kind of isolated I... from the whole rest of the continent. So. Well, that's uh, that's actually not a state. That's a, a territory, Northern Territory. Oh, uh, okay. So it's oh, like right. none of it or something. So the North and yeah. I'm assuming the North and West is kind of empty is sparsely that... populated yeah uh the west is is the largest state actually uh it's very much the west the whole west of australia and it is a lot more empty yeah but it's a lot of mining over there too okay there australian geography class is over for the day <laughs> <laughs> now switching back to canada which is where jim gary's from on the east coast <laughs> he found this uh, hockey game a text-based hockey game from David All's basic uh, game collection of Creative Computing. Now, Creative Computing, of course, was one of the premier magazines for all platforms from the 70s, yeah. um, along with Byte. It was probably magazine. the main two I read back then. So this is one of the collections, because they usually took their best of collections and they published these books. And they did multiple volumes. I can't remember which volume this one's from, but this is from 1978. So this is two years before the Cocoa even came out, just after the Model 1 and the Pep and the Apple II came out. And it's actually kind of funny because you get to pick your own uh, teams and you get to name them and then you get to name the players. And, and just to be funny, uh, he made one called the Trekkers, which is all Star Trek personalities. <laughs> and then he made another one that's the All-Stars, which is all Canadian hockey personalities like Wayne Gretzky, though. I noticed he spelled Gretzky's last name wrong. So I don't know if he's one of those people that hated Wayne Gretzky when they were winning all the Oilers champ Stanley Cup championships. So I'll skip the entry of the stuff here. But it actually does a little text thing. You can see the uh, Trekkers team. I want to know where the Tim Hortons is. And there's the uh, you know famous NHL players, and then the actual game is kind of like almost like a text adventure type thing. And I remember typing some of these in back in the day when I was at school before the Coco came out. But it actually, kind of gives you the play-by-play -play type thing. You know, like an announcer would read it at the actual game. Picard is weaving through the center. Picard gives and goes with data. Pretty passing. Data drops it off to Riker type thing. So it's, it's kind of fun. I mean, it's obviously not a hockey game you'll be playing too much with a joystick or anything, but uh, an interesting bit of uh, computer history and hockey history on the computer, I guess, too. Next up, there's two versions of this program that he did. Now, there's uh, a one-liner for the Commodore 64 that kind of prints a maze out the screen. Now, it does diagonal using their character set originally. So Jim Gary did two versions of this. The first one here, you'll notice that one poke at the beginning. What that does is it tells it to go into semi-graphic six. Now what this does is it changes the semi-graphics character blocks instead of being a two by two pixel grid, it changes it to a two by three, which is similar to the Tiraceti model one and three, and I think the two as well. Um, basically giving you 64 by 48 graphics instead of 64 by 32. Now it does this at the expense of color because it drops it down to, I think you can only get four colors at once on the screen instead of the standard eight. And it also mucks up the text screen royally. But uh, you'll see a high-res version of this kind of creating a random maze. But it also gives you square pixels. Yeah. And more. I mean, he's used, Jim's used this on a couple of his games, too, from I remember. Fruit Panic, I think, uses this. 
So anyways, it gives you a nice little, you know, fake maze to run through, etc. And then he did one in the standard uh, resolution here, which is even shorter yet. Now he did this one as a live type in and he actually screwed up the first time he typed it in and, and typed in there. So I'm going to skip that part of the video because he actually told us to <laughs> and just play the one that actually worked. Well, maybe I'll skip him typing it actually all the way in here. Now, one thing I want to point out here, he has just go to, and I didn't realize this in basic, um, and I don't know if it works in the Cocoa, but I presume it does. If you don't put in a line number, it assumes zero. So if your first line number is zero, you don't actually have to put the line number in the go to command. It'll just go to the first line. That's a trick I had not known about. I don't know if anybody else in the panel did, but. But I mean, to do a little like kind of random mazy type thing like this, and it literally takes less than 32 bytes of code is pretty good. Anyway, I just thought that was kind of interesting. And then the last one, now for those of you who are caught our Coco Talk stream test after dark yesterday, this is actually one of the programs. So Stevie fired up to show up the MC10 emulation on the Coco Pie, which we'll get into further in the regular news, but uh, this is the program here. So it's another creative computing one. This is from the volume three best of uh, in 1980. And it's based on the card game Ukra, which I'm not that familiar with um, from looking at the cards because you only have nine through ace as playing cards in the game. It reminds me of, a, I think it's a German game called Schmier that uh, my grandparents used to play. So similar to that, but a little bit different. But once again, it's a text-based one. I remember Stevie took a look at trying to read the directions here and they just kind of gave up and... <laughs> I think he aborted it pretty quick, if I remember, Grant. Yes, yes, he did. But that's why he never can get past the level one or any of the uh, games. Yeah. So, I mean, as, as most of the creative computing ones, because creative computing was writing for, you know, basic on terminals, on very, very old machines that didn't have graphics modes. So almost all of their stuff is completely text-based. Um, so basically, you'll just see, you know, like, text layout is about as fancy as these things get you on CD graphics. But... Now, Jim, it did mention in the comments, though, that this particular card game, Ukra, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, he's never seen a version of it on the Cocoa before, so that's one of the reasons he ported it. I think it's so. called Euchre. Euchre? It's, okay, it's thank Euchre, you. Euchre, yeah. yeah. It's like a predecessor to Bridge and, you know, all that stuff. Okay. I'm not a huge card game guy, so that, that probably went totally I've been right. learning Bridge the last five years, so... <laughs> So anyway, apparently that was a, a sore spot with Jim that there is no such conversion of that particular card game to the Coco or the MC10 up until now. So now we have one. So now I'll just entice you know, you know Jim to make a graphical version of it. Next up, well, that didn't work. Stevie gave me some tips here to stop that verification. Apparently it didn't take. Thank you, Facebook. <laughs> okay, so Erico here is actually, he mentioned last week that he was going to work on kind of in a modified Pegasus and the Phantom Riders he's doing on the PC, but he's also designing the graphics in such a way they should work on a Coco 3. And I think he's even playing and doing a Coco 2, 1 and 2 version of the graphics as well. And what he shows here is kind of the different zoom in levels. Now he's added more than the original Pegasus game has, and actually you can go into the cave and through it, as you can see here on the very last one. So he's adding some new elements to the game as well. And... Um, the nice thing here, too, is that uh, Paul Shoemaker has decided to do some demos of the software, and he didn't comment here. So here he did a, kind of a zoomed-up version in PMO 3, basically, or maybe 1. And he has a little animated uh, player sprite just kind of sitting over the train just to show what it looks like. 
It's just a kind of a test proof of concept. Actually looks pretty good. Especially for the little resis he's got on the bigger demo here. That looks like that's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Now, Paul also did another one, um, which he mentions here. There's a fun looping bird animation on the Coco Free. Now, this is a, a little bit different. This is actually doing animation and keeping it smooth and non-flickery without doing page flipping whatsoever. And he's actually basing it on the V-Sync. He, like, he'll trigger when he's drawing it. I did want to mention as a history thing, like most of the time nowadays on the Coco, uh, most people use double buffering, whether it's Coco one, two or three, it doesn't matter. We, we draw two screens, we display one that's fully rendered and ready to go. That's what the player sees. Meanwhile, you're on this hidden screen, you're busy drawing and updating your shapes. You don't get to have to watch, you know, the ripply effects of moving stuff around and drawing stuff over top of other things. You get just presented the final screen so it doesn't flicker or, you know, have ripple effects and all this other kind of stuff. Um, what he's doing here is the old-fashioned way. Now, for those of you who know the history of the Atari 2600, and there's a book on how this is done called Chasing the Beam, I think. Robert Murphy probably knows better than I do. Um, but basically, they had to time stuff to H-Sync, which is every single scan line, because you had so little RAM in the machine, you can only render one line at a time. So timing it based on where the raster beam on a CRT was was critical. And doing it on the V-Sync is kind of the same way. What you basically do is you, you figure out where does the start of the screen then you wait for the raster to go past where you're drawing, then you draw it. So that by the time it gets around to coming back to the top of the screen, starts redisplaying the next frame, it's already drawn and you don't get any ripply weird effects either or shimmering or flickering, et cetera, like you would normally. So he's kind of demonstrating the V-Sync version over here. Sorry? Uh, it's uh, called tearing. Tearing, yeah. It's jaggedy because you're seeing something move between the scan lines. Yeah, kind of in mid-draw, yeah. So he did a little demo program here using the V-Sync just to do a little animation of a, of a character. Yeah, and the book is called Racing the Beam by Nick Montfort and company. Yeah. And as you know, so there's no flicker in here at all, and there's no double buffering. This is just using one screen. So the disadvantage is it's a little more technical to program for. The advantage is it, it takes half the amount of graphic screen memory. So if you have a big game that has a lot of levels and stuff that you want in it loaded in memory at once, particularly in a Cocoa 1 and 2, you can use this technique to free up. A double buffering on a Cocoa 1 and 2 would normally take like 12K just for the graphic screens for each of the two to double buffer. This way, it would only take 6K, freeing up 6K more for your program and sprites and sounds and whatever else you got in there. So it is a technique that is useful. And there are some Cocoa games that were done this way. And there's some other ones. I'd say the majority of them that use the double buffering technique just because it's easier on the programmer. I think, Nick, you pretty well always use double buffering. Yeah, right? pretty well always. Did any of your early ones use this technique? Of no, to... not my very first ones. Okay. I'd have to say well, his, his little animation here looks pretty good too. I mean, the actual uh, you know, bird eating, hopping, flying, etc. Maybe he'll put that in that Pegasus game because he's also working on that too, so... Hey, next up, Cuthbert Dragon's been a busy, busy, busy boy this week. Wow. Um, he's cranked out stuff here. Um, some I've seen, most of them I've seen before, but some I haven't. So I'm just going to play little bits and pieces. Is he going to be on our special? No, I, I tried to get a hold of him. That's when he shut comments off on his YouTube page again. So apparently he does not want to deal with the public. Some other people tried writing him some stuff too, and he just shut everything off again. Okay. And he had it off for the entire time. He's been up, up for, except for a couple of weeks recently. So I'll spotlight a few in here in particular. 
let's see. Quasim, what have we seen before? Chopper Strike is uh, Coco won two games, so we'll, we'll save that for when we get it on game on. Kicks. Is this the uh, the window guy? Yeah, he, you notice he's fixed his uh, window blinds. Oh, too. has he? I was about to say he needs to fix his window. <laughs> but yeah, if he's done it, great. <laughs> so the first one I'm going to show here is tennis. Now, we did have a tennis game from Radio Shack. It was a cartridge game. I think it was done by the image producers, when the co company that Gon Soggy worked for. And he'll be mentioned again in the news here. But this one is a P-Mode 4 two-color one. So it's much higher res than the Tandy one. And some more animations too. So you notice legs move, they actually swing the racket more. So I think the Tandy one just basically just moves the players back and forth and that's pretty well it. And this one you can see flickering. So he's using a single screen and he's just redrawing the sprite and he's not timing it to V6. So this is uh, kind of what Paul line. was avoiding. There's still but, a line going across the screen, see it? Yeah, near the top there. I think yeah. some of the later ones might have fixed it though, if I remember. Because he's he's been not releasing these in one big bulk during the week. He does like a couple this day, a couple the next day, a few more the next day type thing. Anyway, it's a it's a pretty interesting uh, and, and I think more graphically detailed than the Tandy tennis one. So that was one. Fingers, which is a platformer. This is one I've never seen before. So if Sixie and any other people want to tell me any details on it, I don't know any much about it. So you're the little guy on the upper right corner there wandering and you've got regular platforms, moving platforms, platforms that dissolve as you stand on them and you have to collect the keys. And once you get them all, you can unlock that uh, door lock in the upper right corner, which is the dark blue with the keyhole in it. But it's a, it's, a, it's a kind of the standard European style platformer where, you know, precise jumps and basically trying to gather enough objects to get onto the next screen type thing. And one where you have to learn how, what order you have to do stuff on the screen in order, in order to finish it. Like in this case, you have to dissolve down to get that key and then hop up before the other ones dissolve to get up to the next key. Timing it so you don't run into that guy that's running back and forth. And like a lot of European games and a lot of European platforms at the time, like Manic Miner, Jets at Will, and a bunch of others we've covered, they always name their levels. You can see Petty Cash is the name of this particular level in the upper left corner there. This one's called Rock and Roll and has an ACDC <laughs> emblem floating back and forth. I don't understand why that's there. Sixty, if you can explain that, go ahead. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting one. Never seen that one before. Sky Defense is a co-game. Balldozer. I'm going to show this one. We have shown it a long time ago. Um, but this is a game that the author, Stuart Orchard, um, wrote this back in 1988, I believe. It was the first game he ever did for the Dragon and sold commercially. And not only is he going to be one of the many, many guests on the Dragon Talk special on August 14th, he's also going to be our interview guest on August 21st to go through all of the games he's done and game development on the Dragon. So I thought I'd show a little bit of that. It's an Arkanoid style clone, but it's got some differences. 
one of the power-ups actually makes an, an invincible ball. Like most of the time your ball will hit a brick, dissolve it or, or partly dissolve it and then bounce back to you. When you get this particular power-up, it'll just plow through absolutely everything and destroy it all without stopping, which I wish the original Arcane had because that would be really handy. Hey, out. And once again, no artifacting on path, so we went for the straight you know, high-res 256192 color. Here, there's a destructo or the whatever you want to call it ball. The ball just wastes through everything. And like the original Arcan, I think he actually tried to follow the, uh, the levels pretty close. I think this is one of the levels in the actual Arkanoid, even the official port. And the ones with the rivets are the ones you have to hit twice to, to destroy, which is also similar to the original game, without having the colors to be able to differentiate. And like the original Arkanoid, he's changing the background pattern each level too, so you have something you know a little bit more to look at than just black space. Anyway, it's a really good Arcanoid clone. It was um, Stuart's first commercial release for the Dragon, and I'm really glad he's going to be on both of those two shows that I mentioned before in the 14th and 21st of August. So look forward to those. If you guys have any questions on his games, including this one, uh, his interview on the 21st will be the time to, to ask them, so get your questions ready. Okay, so Glaxons we've seen. Um, it's a Coco game. Bumpers is a Coco game. Atomics, it's just using the different color set for the Dragon. Mission Attack, I think we've shown before. Protectors is uh, one of my favorites. That's a North American one, Robotack, Ninja Warrior. I might as well show this here just because people are wondering what the game is. A lot of timing. And this is not the first level. I think this is it might be the second. Or maybe it's the first. No, this will be the second, I think, because the fireball's not first. Now, one thing I will mention, I forgot to mention uh, during Nick's segment, the more you jump, the more holes in the floor are going to appear. So if you cannot jump as little as possible, you'll have less of those to have to deal with, having to jump over something while you're dealing with fireballs and rocks and everything else. So that's one little trip trick to the game I forgot to mention. That's he actually I just finished his level so please do that. Anyway that's a kind of a sneak peek for the game this week. Rommel's Revenge, that's a dragon unique one. I think we've shown that one before though it's basically um Battle Zone. Actually, I, I preferred over Rommel 3D, which is from Mictron. Uh, the Frog, which is the black and white one from Tom Mix. Doo Doo. This is one I don't think I have seen before, but this is the Dragon's version of Pango. And we've got a couple Pangos on the Coco side. We've got Ice Master from Arcade Animation Inc. We've got Pangon by Spectral Associates. Um, Tom Mix had one too. What the heck was it called? Uh, I'm blanking. One of you guys can maybe it might be on some idiot's website. I'm not even sure. <laughs> There's one in particular I know if you can look there. <laughs> 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 I 
I found this ironic because it's a clone of a game based on ice. You have to use the color set that has no white in it. It's also a little bit more blocky. It's it's definitely a tile based version of it as opposed to like wandering around smoothly. But gameplay is basically the same. And if anybody's wanting to chat, if Sixty has any comments on these, since he actually would know these better than I do, then uh, please relay them to me while I'm yakking here. Next one, Barmy Burgers. I can't remember if we showed this one or not, but I thought I'd show it just in case. But uh, Burger Time, which is a fairly popular arcade game, we have Lunchtime by by Tom Mix's uh, Novasoft. Uh, but this is the Dragon version, which is a little bit high res, but I'm not sure. This one actually might be written in basic because it seems to be very tile based and it also seems to be a little bit slow and it sounds like the play command is doing the sound effects i'll let you guys be the judge yep i mean for a basic game that's this isn't actually yeah bad. It yeah, looks for basic as well, yeah if i'm right i mean if this is a semi-language then i'm disappointed But I mean, the game elements seem to be, I don't know if there's pepper, that's one thing. Oh yeah, there is, because the P equals five on the top there, but uh, the basic gameplay is there, the graphics actually look pretty good. I mean, it's a little flickery and it's, you know, moving an entire cell at a time, but other than that, it's, it is burger time. Thought that that was cool. Catalyst, I think this was a game by Mictron on the Coco, but it's not one we've seen too often on the Coco side of things either, so I thought I'd briefly show it. Bosconian? No. <laughs> totally different. Oh, right. Yeah, it is too. You, you have to, like, merge atoms to make molecules or something. I can't remember the exact oh, I saw that other picture, well, this, which I think on, must have been. This is on the Coco as well. Yeah, it was originally on the Coco. It's just one that's not one that's shown too often. I think because yeah, it's a complex game to figure out. Do you, Are you familiar with it, Nick? Yeah, I played it. I had this as a kid. So, what what exactly are you doing here? Because I haven't, I haven't, I've seen it, but I've never really played it. I cannot remember. It's a really, it's a really weird game. It reminds me a little bit of like Adam, which was a Radio Shack cartridge, that was meant to be semi-educational or something like that. But I totally forgot about this game until uh, you showed this. So, oh, there, more fodder for your upcoming episode. And Star Blaster, we've already covered that one. So anyway, he put out a ton of videos. Uh, some of these are Coco ones with different color sets than you're used to. So if you want to check those out, you can. And then, of course, some of the original Dragon games. Um, did Eric or Sixty have any comments? Before I go on he, to the next. He never saw a good Dragon Pango. Oh, really? So did they not port? Like Spectrum and Tom X both were people that uh, sold through microdeals. So I'm surprised they didn't get those at the very least. I don't think Arcade, Arcade Animation Inc., which is M.G. Lustig's company, which he formed after he sold some stuff through his computerware. Um, I don't think any of his stuff got ported to the Dragon directly unless it was you know, kind of done under the table. Anyway, some cool stuff from old Cuthbert Dragon. I wish we could get a hold of him. I'd love to have him on the show. Um, not this Dragon special episode. We're kind of locked in who's going to be on. There is already talk of a sequel. There's uh, some of the Dragon people themselves are actually trying to get some people that uh, weren't able to respond in time to get on the show about possibly doing a second edition too with some other people on as well. And of course, we're talking about doing singular interviews, group interviews with just a couple of people that work together on projects and stuff too. 
So hopefully over the next you know six months, we're going to try to get as many of the people that are going to be on the special, which at last counts like 14 or 15 people um, on as individual long-term interviews. Because in this case here, the show is going to be big enough as it is. We're only going to be doing like a 10 to 15 minute presentation of what they're doing. And then a question and answer session where you guys will be able to ask questions. The chat room will be able to ask questions. The other dragon people will be able to ask questions because some of these people don't even know each other. So should be a should be a great show. Next up, Frodo NL, who's actually been on our show a couple of times. Uh, he recorded this quite a while ago on Twitch, but uh, the Amigos have released it now on their YouTube channel. And this is uh, he has this uh, segment he does called the first year of, and then he picks a platform. It can be a gaming platform, it can be a home computer, whatever. And he's done the Coco One and Two One, which we've shown on the show before. This particular case, he does almost four hours of the first year, year and a half of Coco Three games. Um, so in this case here, you can see Grand Prix Challenge by DICOM. And he goes through you know, some Spectral stuff, some Tandy stuff, some DICOM stuff, uh, computerware stuff, etc. Um, I'm not going to play the whole thing here because it's like four hours long. It's almost as long as a Coco Talk. Um, but if you want to see like what the earliest games in the Coco 3 look like, and, then, and you got to remember too, like you'll see some pretty unimpressive ones. Like this particular one here is not that impressive. It looks nice, but it's it's not the greatest gameplay and it's... Uh, you know, it's not fast, doesn't have great sound. Uh, Return to Junior's Revenge is another one like that, too. But these were done, when the Coco 3 was released, it was announced at the end of July 1986. It actually came to the stores September, October-ish, depending on where you were. So people trying to get games out in the first six months had completely new hardware to deal with. Nobody used an MMU before. Nobody used the Gimme before. Nobody had this timer, uh, the interrupt timers. Nobody had, you know, the Gimme interrupt handler itself all these new graphics modes, et cetera. There's all this new stuff to learn. So the people that were trying to get games out as quick as possible, learn some basic stuff, like how do I set up a 16 color graphics screen and go for it and just you know do as much as they could. And that is reflected a lot in these earliest games. And then of course, you know, after people learn the hardware and learn the tricks like Nick and Sock and uh, Glenn Delgren is gonna be our guest on the 28th, um, Dave Dyes and a bunch of others. And, you know, it took a couple of years to learn all this stuff to get the really good games to start getting cranked out. And Nick, I'm sure you can attest to that too. Like your your oh, earliest yeah, my, Coco Three efforts. Well, my first Coco Three one was uh, Rupert Rhythm, which is why I hate it so much. Because there's so many things that I did back then. Because as you say, I it was a new piece of hardware. I didn't really know all the little tricks and all that. So as you go, you you know the next game's a bit better, and the next game's a bit better, and and I'm still learning today. Yeah, yeah, that's true. People keep learning new tricks, so. Well, look at those losers. <laughs> That's right. All, all three of them. <laughs> so this is something we did last weekend. So as we advertised last week, the Amigos annually have a thing called anyway, the Amigathon. <laughs> that... I have no idea. <laughs> so basically, the Amigathon is a, I think this was the fourth year they've done it. So it's a fundraiser. And it's for the... Uh, children's miracle network hospital so it's for kids in hospitals basically and families that can't afford you know room and board to visit their kids if they go you know have a specialist in some different city or hospital so it's a it's a good fundraiser for a good cause and previously it's been basically completely mega based it's a 24-hour marathon the, uh, the couple of years uh brent aaron and john would literally stay up 24 hours straight to do it and they were getting too burned out so this year they opened it up a bit more and basically they did 12 hours themselves covering Amiga stuff. And then they had a bunch of volunteers, Kim Justice from the UK, um, Flack, who's from Oklahoma, um, Robert Flack uh, O'Hara, 
uh, who has his own YouTube channel. He specializes in C64 and a bunch of other people. And they invited us to go on to it too. So uh, we had a one hour bit on last Saturday evening, I think it was. And of course we did Coco stuff. So we decided, uh, Steve and I would co-host, Nick joined us too, because I mean, he's got some you know fairly decent games. So we covered basically what was new first. We picked a couple games released in the last year, year and a half, like basically during COVID. So uh, we didn't cover all of them. We just covered a few. So we covered um, Paul's uh, Poker Stars or Poker Squares. Poker Squares, sorry. We covered the Coco 3 version of that one, uh, mentioning also he's got a Coco VGA version and the regular Coco 1 and 2 version. Um, we covered... Uh, I can't remember now. Oh, Space Raiders by Jamie Cho using the Sprite Library by Richard Godekin. Now, this is the new version because um, he's released a couple versions of this as, as, as he's been programming it. So the first versions were basically just Space Invaders with enhanced graphics and digitized sound, which is kind of what you see here. Now, on the later screens, the invaders just don't go back and forth. They start shifting in rows and they start going in opposite directions in rows and all kinds of stuff. So it gets harder, faster, and there's a lot, a lot more variety to it. And apparently from what Jamie's told me, when you get to the fourth or fifth screen, there's actually something new added to that. Now, Stevie being Stevie couldn't get that far. And to be honest, I haven't had a chance to play it to get that far either. So, uh, so we spotlighted that one as well. We also spotlighted Return of the Beast. This is uh, Stuart Orchard, who we mentioned our special guest on the 21st. Um, and who did that ball, um, Bulldozer Arkanoid clone we showed earlier. So this is the Return of the Beast. I'm not going to play this one because this is actually one that uh, I want Stuart to talk about on the show. So, But it's got some of the most impressive sound I've heard on a Coco 1-2 Dragon level game ever. This theme music is just awesome. And it's using, as Kieran Anscombe, 60 in our chat room is in there right now. Um, help them with the sound routines for, for doing the three-voice sound at the beginning. And it's got it's basically a four-way space shooter, Xevious-type game, except with four-way scrolling instead of just you know a little bit left and right. Uh, with really good sound, really good graphics. It's done in lower res, but the graphics are very well done. And he considers this just a game demo, but it's actually quite a playable game. Sorry, somebody was saying something? No? Okay. So anyway, uh, well, we probably, I'm, I'm guessing Stuart will at least mention this during his little bit on the Dragon Talk special on the 14th, but he will also be talking more extensively about it on the his, his interview on the 21st. So um, definitely check it out. If you haven't downloaded, give it a try. I would recommend downloading all three of his games that he's released uh, to try before the 21st interview. So if you guys have any questions on the game specifically, you'll you'll have them ready by then. And then we started covering some old classics like Zaxxon, the Donkey Kong transcode and stuff. And we were trying to pick, when we went to the classics, we were trying to pick some stuff to show off the Coco a little bit because we had a lot of people, because the way this Amigathon worked is after the initial stream is done, you basically raid in Twitch terminology you raid another channel. That was how we passed the baton between all the different streamers that took part. So, you know, whoever had been watching the previous uh, part of the show, which I think was Robert Flacco Harris C64 stuff, uh, he raided us. So all the viewers immediately get forwarded to our our stream and we did our, and then we forwarded it off to, uh, I can't remember who we did, Mr. Cola, I think, who was demonstrating some more recent game console games. So basically everybody just raided each other and this this whole pack of like 50, 60 people that watched the show at a time would immediately get forwarded on and watch your segment. And we had a lot of people that had never seen a Coco before or a Dragon. So this was actually kind of neat to educate them and we were taking questions and answering them during this live stream. So this is the live stream of our hour on uh, YouTube on Stevie's channel. So anybody who didn't catch it live on Twitch, you can go check it out there. And a lot, if you're into multi-platforms, I would definitely go recommend watching the rest of the streams. There was some incredible stuff 
one in particular I'll mention, the Beagles themselves were playing a game, well, a couple of games. They were doing a couple of Olympic things because so the Olympics are on. So they did Summer Olympics, and they also did kind of, I don't know what it's called off the top of my head, but it was basically like uh, obscure sports from other countries. So they had like, you know, log rolling from Canada, and they had, you know, hurling a log through the air from Scotland, and it has a name for it. I can't remember off the top of my head. But some of these games had a lot of polish and a lot of funny things happened. Um, they did the a caber? lot of little... What's was that? that? The, was that the caber toss you're thinking of? Yeah, caber toss. Yeah, thank you. I couldn't remember the name of it. Um, but but some of the uh, the game polishes like little funny bits that happens if you screw up. And uh, like at the Summer Olympics, there was one where Boat was trying to figure out the controls for pole vaulting. So he starts running and the person's got their pole and they're running down. And he completely missed putting the pole into the ground to actually do the jumps. So the guy just runs right through. It runs under the mattress and it keeps around running. So we called him Forrest Gump after that. Um, then he did another one where he was doing the uh, parallel bars, the gymnastics one where you flip between the bars and the twirlies and stuff. And he was doing awesome. He was doing flips and twists and turns. And then he goes on and he was trying to figure out how to do the dismount. Well, his dismount went and face planted straight down to the ground, which everybody was just laughing hysterically at. And then on the caber toss, he was you have to run and then you'll know, flip the log and throw it forward. Well, he flipped it straight up, so it actually crushed his head and drove him into the ground. So there's a lot of funny moments like that. But the game has a lot of these little bits here, like if you screw up, and it was actually quite funny. It's a it's a really good video. And then all the other streamers for various platforms, definitely check those out too. And I will mention too, if you go to amigathon.com, which is the fundraising site, that is being left open because a lot of people couldn't make the live show because it's summer holidays and some people are away. So they're leaving it open for donations for at least a few weeks, if not maybe a couple of months. And I know they've taken some donations since, like they raised 7,200 and some odd dollars um, during the actual live 24 hour show. That's already passed $7,300 now. So if any of you didn't catch the stream and you want to donate to the Children's Miracle Network hospitals, you can still do so at amigathon.com. Do we know how much money we raised during our segment? Um, we started, I think we were at 6,000. Start here. Yeah, so we're at sixty five hundred sixty five at the start, and then by the time we were done, we were just about seven thousand. So we raised about you know half a grand or a little bit more than that. Well, that's good in the span of an hour. And for you know a, a show that's not has only been affiliated with the Amigos you know recently. And also later on, like in England, this was early wee hours of the morning we were doing it. So not you know, a lot of them would have been watching live unless they stayed up all night, which some did. So, yeah, we did pretty good. And oh, this is some people. Go ahead. If this is a megathon. Are those three losers who are running this uh, Coco segment, are they <laughs> the, um, the three amigos? <laughs> <laughs> we're, the, we're the poor imitations of the real That's three right. amigos. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Anyways, it's for a good cause. I did donate to it last year. I did watch it last year. And when they started opening it up to taking other streamers so they didn't have to do the 24 hours themselves, I immediately asked uh, Stevie if he'd be interested in doing it. And he said, sure. So we, we ended up doing it. I think we might make this an annual thing too. It's a good cause. It's a lot of fun. It's a good way to show off the COVID of people that don't normally see it. And uh, in this particular case, maybe we can do it again next year. We can also show off what came out new but, you know, each year to, you know, as it started the show to show like, here's the new stuff this year that's really cool looking, whatever. And we didn't cover everything. There was more games released during COVID than just the ones we showed. We just decided we wanted to mix it up a little bit with classic stuff for all the people that didn't know what the Coco was or what it's capable of. 
Next up, now I'm not sure who this is. TKM's Retro Gaming Nook. Does anybody know who that person is? Because they do a lot of game streams, but he's been doing a lot of Coco stuff. And apparently he's got a real Coco 2, a real Coco 3, and he's been just cramming. I've never seen this channel before, but he cranked out like five or six games right off the start this week. So he's covered Sailor Man, and he did the Dragon version of Sailor Man for some weird reason, uh, which had some you know extra splash screens and stuff. Uh, Return of Junior's Revenge, Canyon Climber, Downland, and Marble Maze. And he actually, I think it's his wife maybe in the background. So they both play some of these games. And like in the case of Sailor Man, he's quite impressed with it for a Coco 1 and 2 game. And uh, he also does really well. He just about wrapped all three screens twice uh, in one single gameplay. I'll play a little bit of the Sailor Man, and I'll just show you some clips, you know, screenshots basically from the other ones. One for artifact. Now, this is unique to the Dragon. It's kind of weird, or maybe it's patched with the Coco 3, I'm not sure, but this is definitely oh, I've not seen that. Yeah, that's a patched one. Yeah, this is quite good. Right. Screen is red, hit enter. Screen is blue, hit the clear key. Ooh, okay. So this is Popeye. Pretty good look, huh? Yeah. I mean, this is amazing. Like, if why, why can't they make every game like this? It's so impressive. Might be yours. You want to try it? Push the button. Hit. Oh, hit it. Oh no. Hey, as I mentioned, he's quite good at this particular one. I, now these videos just got released over the week and I didn't check YouTube videos until uh, I think early this morning, actually. I'd done all the Facebook updates yesterday and I wasn't expecting there to be so many. So I haven't actually had a chance to watch through all these. I've, I watched through one or two this morning, kind of get the feel of it type of thing. So they kind of review the games themselves and they're pretty honest. Like they, they, they also found a few that had bugs because they were, you know, hacked versions or whatever and like Return of uh, Junior's Revenge. Um, for example, on the hacked version that's floating around the archive, there's a couple of the shapes got completely corrupted, so you can't even see the little fish birdie things coming at you. In some cases, you see a little couple of dots. That's the only reference you have. I have a copy of the original one here, which doesn't have those problems, so it's definitely just the hack that had it. But they give pretty honest reviews of them. He's cranked out a ton of them this week. I'm hoping he keeps going. Um, I haven't actually finished watching them. I'll be doing that probably tonight, so... Well, that's the Sailorman one. Here's the one he did for Junior's Revenge, and this is the one that has some of the corruption in the graphics. And these are all played in real hardware. So, and he's also you can hear him mentioning like this one plays better with the Black Beauty joystick, and this one needs the deluxe with centering turned on, etc. There's another one here with Canyon Climber, though I think this is the wrong color set. I think this is the alternate, um, you know, artifacting color set. And Downland. I think I usually play the other color set too, though it's not as important on this one. If he's using it on a Kaikai Kai 3, he probably doesn't realize how to No, he does. The... He doesn't know about the F1. I just don't think he knew oh, what the color okay. set was supposed to be. Or yeah. what... Like, Dallin doesn't really have one, I guess, technically. Um, Candy Climber, I mean, the sky should be blue when you're on the mountain screen. And he had it inverted. I, unless he's playing at sunset, then I guess it's fine. <laughs> Now, Dylan, he did mention here that he had to play this on his Coco 1 and 2 because it didn't work on the Coco 3. And I think he has the actual original cartridge or maybe he has the uh, original 1.0. Now, this is a problem. The original 1.0, which actually doesn't mention the version number on it, Downland, the cartridge from Radio Shack, does not work on a Coco 3. 
but they later released a 1.1 version with a different label and it actually says version 1.1 on the screen. That one does, so they patched it internally. So if you have a Cocoa 3 and you've downloaded Downline from somewhere where you got the original cartridge and it doesn't work, you will need to get the upgraded 1.1 version then it works fine. And then the final one you did was uh, Marble Maze. And I won't go through playing the whole thing there because you know, everybody's, we, we did that on, as our game on challenge not too long ago. In fact, if I get a hold of him, I have left him a couple of uh, YouTube comments and he might be somebody we know because I don't know what his real name is. I would love to have him participate in the game on challenge because he's a pretty damn good game player and he'd give, you know, Buck Owens and a few people who were running for their money. Because I've seen some of the scores he got in some of these games and he's, he's pretty good at it. This one I just saw this morning. I haven't even watched it myself yet. So I, this is uh, Rob Retro's Rambles, and I'm assuming he has his normal sarcasm and stuff in the game <laughs> uh, reviews that he does. Um, I might play just the first bit here to hear the intro because I don't know too much about it. Uh, side of Attack is actually, and, and that's the word baddies spelled backwards, um, is a Dragon original. That, or, uh, at least it's a UK original. It might be cross-platform. I can't remember if it is or not. Sixty, you can correct me if I'm wrong on that one. Um, but it wasn't one that we showed up in North America. So this is kind of a sneak preview of stuff on the dragon as well. Hello, you. This is 3D Sidab attack on the Dragon 32. And it looks like it's in high res mode there. Look at that color glass. Look at that. It's just, mm, let me zoom in so you can actually look at it. Look at the interference patterns there. Mm, 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 mm. Yeah, 3D Sidab attack. Uh, precursor to 3D Lunar attack. This is what you had to put up with, pal, Nick. Played a fair bit. It was on the, Not as uh, well. Yeah, compilation. It looks a bit. Uh, we didn't get that yellowy look. Uh, I suspect this is like a stripped-down version. I don't know. I've never played. Well, Sixty said it was multi-platform. Always aware that it existed. A very early Houston game. Um, Andrew Braybrook, I believe, off the top of my head, whether he did the Dragon version, I don't know. Uh, we will go with joystick. I'm hoping I can use my uh, joystick converter to play normally. Can I? Can I press fire? Oh, well, up and down is working. Right? Right, so now, how do I? You must guide your laser bolts. Yeah, so the direction part. Directly you can figure out their target using. Oh, right, so I can just press fire now. Right, okay. All right, so that's the... Oh, look at this. Okay. I think I've tried this one. Those are supposed to be like skyscrapers you're flying toward in the 3D view. Then you got ships that come in, you have to zoom in your sights and shoot. So I'm guessing we've got... There we go. We... Nice. Now, 60, does it always run this slow, or is this like a speed control of the joystick or something? Aren't they? Considering they're, they're light. So in theory, I should be able to you seen this one before, Nick? Nah. Either Nick, for that matter? <laughs> nah. No, I haven't. I've, I've seen it before a long time ago. I kind of forgot about it, to be honest. I'm turning. And I can't remember if it fancy, plays any house or not. Look at that. That 3D effect of the buildings yeah, is actually like you're away. flying at night and it's like lit up windows or something. That's actually not bad. It's pretty cool, actually. Needs a bit of a speed up poke, though, I think. 
It's where that uh, colored artifacting uh, works out because it's just the colored lights from the, the windows. There you go. I may have to say, remember this one, Nick, for your Game On segment challenge here. Yeah. Well, I remember what you said last time, how to spin a, a yeah. mistake into a, a feature. Yeah. Well. <laughs> I haven't seen the other versions, too, because apparently it was cross-platform, how they how this would compare with whatever other platforms it showed up on. 60 said it, he thinks it is pretty slow. Well, I might have to six or nine optimize this sucker then. <laughs> Or you can just run in the Cocoa 3 oh, and put the... Yeah, just put in high clock rate and see if it's any better. Yeah. Hopefully it's not frame lock because that would kind of... I don't be... really know how to avoid things. Anyway, cool. So Rob usually has a pretty hilarious commentary as he goes through the game. So why don't you guys watch that? And the next up here, we actually have the author of this blog post here. So Nick, did you oh. want to... Uh, Discuss oh, it well, now. Did we want to show the video again? We, no, we, we well, we showed it last week, so probably no need. Uh, there's a link. I promised, uh, well, last time on the last chapter, I didn't do a video, and I said I'll just hold off a video uh, for the next week so there's more to show. So in this chapter, there's not a lot of text in this uh, chapter, uh, but there is the video preview, and that'll just show you everything I've done for this chapter and the previous chapter. And yep, that's a, about all, I guess. I One mean, thing I notice th you're doing here on, on this blog, and this is like something we talked about earlier in the show here about the fact that a lot of the European made games platformers actually named their levels. That was a technique yeah, that they just that, used that we never really did here. Yeah, I'm going to do, I'm going to add that in. That's not fully functional yet, but at the start of every level, it will show the name of the level. So these two levels, which are, close to completion uh yeah shredder and cage hoist so i just got to come up with names and i'll just have it display that every time it's about to uh, throw up a level the main one i did this chapter was the the cage hoist which is the the bottom picture there where your character actually rides the can go into that cage hoist and you control it up down left and right and you have to uh, collect the boxes that are on the conveyor belts so it's in it's in the demo video anyway, so you can have a look at it and actually see it in play. Okay, and that's uh, actually that's a technique that I kind of like too. And I know uh, Boat and Aaron have mentioned that they they prefer games that have you know level names because it's easier to talk about. You don't say like Screen yeah, Five, yeah. which nobody knows what that is. You can say on the hoist level or whatever. Yeah. So yeah. I'm doing that in my game too, where I'm naming the, the screens as well. Yeah, yeah, I noticed a lot of the European ones did that, and, and, and yeah, I'm trying to add in. Of all the levels in the game, of which there's 14, many of them will be little mini games in themselves. So they're not spectacular games, but they're little mini games in each level is what I'm trying to achieve. So there's a bit more variety in the game. Yeah, because most of the platforms you've done before, like Ruby Rhythm, it's basically you're doing the same thing. It's just a different layout. And yeah, In this yeah. case here, you've got like you're adding a hoist, which you steer in four directions. You yeah. have to catch boxes. and So it varies the game mechanics a bit. I mean... There is a general uh, theme throughout every level, you know, the things you can do, but then I'm just trying to add bits in there. Like I, I'll tell you now, one of the other levels, uh, which I'll be doing maybe next, is a casino. So there'll be a uh, slot machine as part of the that that level, where you can actually gamble some of your some of your uh, 
collected uh, points to get other things. So anyway, we'll see how it turns okay. out. Right, now, for cool. people on the panel, or did we want to play a little bit of the video just to kind of rekindle people's memories of it or for people sure. that maybe missed it last week? Yeah, go right ahead. Well, it's only a four-minute video, but yeah, we, we did play it last week. So There's no voice or anything. I just yeah let the game go by we'll itself. Go fast forward to the but hoist. We'll watch pay, the hoist. Pay attention to the voices when the character falls off, the, uh, off uh, a platform and he's falling to his doom. Okay, I'll just fast forward to the hoist one here. Oh, yeah, go straight to the hoist one here. And that so background noise you faintly hear is not my fan. That's actually the background noise of the game. Yeah, there's motors, a bit of a, the motors are, are going, so it sounds better in the real, when, when played in real life, I guess. Sounds cool. Um, but uh, I, I've tweaked it a bit, so the boxes actually are coming out faster now and and more varied. But when I did the video, I didn't have that. Do I fall off anywhere here? I can't remember now. Yeah, find the part where you fall off. You got to, you got to hear that part. Oh, yeah, just back a bit. Crikey! <laughs> That's uh, cool. I just had, I just had to put that in. And what does cranky actually mean? Ah, <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's like, it's an exclamation. <laughs> Holy cow! Crikey! Holy cow! You know, <laughs> crikey! <laughs> Yeah, I forgot Grand hasn't actually seen this, so. Oh, this I see. Okay. I won't play the whole thing again. Yeah. Grant no, put his no, website no and bump his view count up. Yeah, yeah, I will. That's cool, <laughs> though. I like that. Sorry, that, that game seems to be coming along quite well, unlike mine. And I'm um, assuming this is a Coco 3 512 game or 128? Yeah, yeah. Like Coco 3 512. Now, have you decided whether it requires 609 or 609? I think you're going for 6809, and this is demoed on 6809 It's right going to work on a 6809. If you have a 6309, it, it speeds up a bit more in that mode. But, yeah, it will work on a 6809 as well. And are we looking at Christmas release date? Well, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm aiming for it. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot of work because every level's got a fair bit of, of work to be done. But we'll see how we go. And that's the end of the game on news. So I don't know if we want to do a break yep. before I get in the regular news. Or yep, we will take in? a uh, let's take a little break here. So uh, I will do a commercial, and we'll be back here right after these messages. Un ordinateur couleur qui a de la personnalité, le Coco 2 de Radio Sac. On solde pour Noël à partir de 149,95. And now, Coco Thought by Samuel Gimes.
If you're using your color computer in Quebec and it stops working, is it now a Coco won't do? Hi, Ron Delvo, Timberman, Coco Fest, Coco Talk. In a world where RGB produces black and white video, one cable can make a difference. Switcheroo. Coco3scartcable.com. Hey, have you got your Coco 3 yet? Hi, this is Rick Adams author of Temple of Rom in Shanghai, and you've tuned into Coco Talk, the nation's leading live talk show featuring the Tandy Color Computer. What's going on, everybody? Original Gamer Stevie Stroh here, and if you're a fan of vintage computing and retro gaming, then you're going to love our retro swag shop at 8bit256.com. There you will find custom designs by Instagram artist Joel M. Adams. You can get I'm a Coconut, Coco Talk, and other cool video game images on a t-shirt, coffee mug, or mouse pack. So if you love retro, then head on over to the retro swag shop at 8bit256.com today. Tell them the Original Gamer Stevie Stroh sent you. Radio Shack Storewide Manager's Red Tag Sale is on now. We've slashed prices 20%, 30%, 40%, 50%. Save on famous Radio Shack Hi-Fi, car stereo, radios, toys, TV games, calculators, walkie-talkies, and CB radios. Look for the big red tag. Save like never before on these and literally hundreds of red tag specials. Hurry into Radio Shack today. Hi, this is Randy Kindig of the Foppy Days Podcast. I just love me some cocoa, and nobody covers it better than Steve Strobridge. You're listening to Coco Talk. From around the world, what you need to know. Get caught up on news with El Hello, a Muppet News Flash. Still not used to being called a Muppet, but okay. <laughs> All right, we are now back with news with L. Curtis Boyle. So get your pillows ready and take your afternoon nap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Coco Talk News. It's just like Valium. <clears throat> okay, first off, before I start showing the screen here, I'll just mention something that uh, Mark Mosley actually highlighted for me here. The uh, latest Coco Crew <clears throat> for this month has just dropped this morning. I haven't had a chance to listen to it whatsoever, so I'll just read a couple of bits off of the... Uh, show notes so the host discussion is uh when does someone being wrong on the internet require you to intervene i can imagine that could be a pretty heated topic <laughs> what was it again what was it when does someone being wrong on the internet require you to intervene <laughs> okay <laughs> that's opening a can of worms i think yes it is uh and then neil's corner read does a review of bouncy ball which is uh the one by uh, who did that lee So it was, it was his first, uh, it was a CMOC game, if I remember. It's actually one, uh, one of the first uh, efforts uh, for CMOC, and he showed it off at Cocoa Fest and sold it there for a little bit. So it's a low-res game, but with, like, side-scrolling. And he's made versions, there's versions for the MC-10. He's made a version for uh, iOS uh, that you can get as well, and for Apple TV, et cetera, too. So it's a 
pretty decent game. And it's actually based on an earlier game. I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but uh, I look forward to hearing Neil's review on that as well. Plus all the normal, you know, news and uh, I guess there's another this month in Cocoa history, feedback, etc. I haven't listened to it yet, so I'll, I'll do that uh, after the show. And okay, you guys seeing that? Yes, we are. Okay, so Dave Erie, Mr. Dave 639 in our Discord. Uh, we showed that he was experimenting with doing some hardware scrolling. He's been learning how to do that and how to do kind of the wraparound technique of um, a long vertical scroll where you don't have to like literally fill 512k of memory with you know that much screen real estate. You actually start drawing. Basically, you reserve two screens and then you kind of wrap the scroll around. So you have to kind of have to redraw some certain parts as you're going across, but it basically only takes about 64k to do a full screen. Then you just do tiles and whatever else to do it. So he's done an update here where he's got the uh, controls working a bit better. He's got more than one sprite on the screen. In fact, it goes up to three near the end. The ship actually can move around and, and does a little bit of firing. He does a standard scroll first, then he enables the uh, palette shifting uh, during the scroll to kind of give it a flying through a nebula effect. So he did a pretty good job on it, so I thought I'd just play it. I'm going to mute the sound a bit because it's basically just breathing and hitting keys and joystick buttons. But I mean, Mr. Dave's only been doing assembly language for, I think, less than two years now. So he's, he's going pretty quick learning this stuff. And of course, he's got that big, you know, manga style game coming up that he's working on, too. Obviously, he's controlling the one ship, the other one just flies around, or he's added the third just to see what the speed is like while drawing. And here's the nebula effect, which I think is really cool. It would look good in the space game. Anyway, that was his latest update on that one. Uh, I'm definitely looking forward to see what, what he ends up doing with this. And some of the background graphics he got looks really nice. And that nebula effect actually looks really cool. It reminds me of Star Trek II, the Wrath of Khan type thing. When the, I don't know what you call it, a thunderstorm in the nebula during the Khan battle sequence. I know this is an old hat to Nick Marantes, but... <laughs> Next up, uh, Paris Rat. Uh, who's done a ton of things with the Dragon and Coco communities. Too many to mention. He's going to try to be on the Dragon uh, special. Now, he's going to do a pre-record because he's not going to be at a place with any decent internet connection during the time Dragon talks on on, on the 14th of August. He's actually on a bit of a holiday with his family, and he's going to be trying to call into the cell phone. So we're going to probably just do audio only just to make sure we can understand him properly. It's not going to be enough bandwidth to do video. So hopefully he'll get a pre-recorded video done to kind of show some stuff he's done. And there's tons of it. I mean, the AGD conversion is one big one. I think we've mentioned on the show numerous times before we converted the Spectrum uh, graphics design system over. And he's ported 219 games over from the Spectrum to the Dragon and the Coco. And he's actually been doing, you know, the MSX2 Plus versions with enhanced graphics and enhanced sound. Uh, he's ported a few of those games over as well. So he's been doing a ton of stuff. Now, this is another part of the stuff he's been doing here. So this is DOS plus extender uh, for the Dragon and the Coco SDC. Now, the Coco SDC has a little dip switch on. You can have it so that it'll emulate, you know, the hardware setup of a disk controller for the Dragon as opposed to Coco. Because that's one thing where the Dragon and the Coco is a fair bit different. They don't use the NMI halt system at all. Their DOS is based on sectors, not granules. So, I mean, that's, out of all the things that are so compatible between the two machines, the disk system is not one of them. It is actually quite different. So what he does here, 
And this is uh, currently in beta. You can download this if you want to try it. If you have a Cocoa West Decina Dragon, you can actually download this and give it a shot and give them some feedback on the World of Dragon archive form, which is actually where the World of Dragon archive that a lot of the game information I get for the Dragon is, is comes from as well. So this involves patching both DOS plus the handle drive wire, kind of like HDB DOS and the Cocoa does. And also with the help of Darren Atkinson, of course, designed the Cocoa FTC, he's also now able to flash the ROM banks from the Dragon itself, just like the Cocoa does. So if you do any updates, you want to update the ROMs, or you want to flash update the actual Cocoa FTC itself, up until now, you had to have a Cocoa to do that. You couldn't do it on the Dragon. That has now been fixed. You can now do it on the Dragon itself, thanks to uh, Tarek. Um, so this is DOS Plus extension version 24.e6. It allows the standard DOS commands on any VDK files on a DriveWire server, so you can access all your Dragon stuff directly. Um, there are some caveats, as you mentioned, if you go through the messages here, some stuff that he's still working on. Uh, this is a beta. Um, and he's also um, fixing some stuff about dealing with reading uh, real drives. Like if you have a multi-pack in the Dragon, you have a real floppy drive hooked up, as well as the Coke SDC. There's still some stuff there that he's got to you know, finish straightening out type thing. But... It's a, it's a pretty cool that the dragon is catching up with a lot of the stuff we've done here, you know, recently on the Coco and, you know, doing multi-packs, you can hook up multiple hardware cards and stuff is cool too. Technically you could add in, you know, like a Moo or you could add in, uh, what is a dragon, their own SD solution. You could still theoretically have that in the Coco SDC running at the same time if, if the addressing works out correctly. I'm not sure if it does, but it's really cool that Pair is doing all this stuff. And he's done so much stuff on the dragon Coco communities later. He's one guy I definitely do want to have on for a one-on-one -on -one interview. Now, we might bring some of the other people he collaborates on because he does a lot of software stuff for people that are designing hardware, like John Whitworth with the MSX2 Plus sports, and maybe we'll have a dual interview. But he's done so much stuff on the software side of things over the years, too, that there's just, I could definitely take an entire two-hour episode just talking about his stuff. So we'll try to get that set up sometime between September and December. Okay, next up after that, Brenda, is it Make or Mackie? I'm not sure how to pronounce the last name. Let me know. Nope, okay, I'll just call it Make for now. Brenda, if you're listening to this, please correct me if I'm wrong. So she's done a couple things she mentioned here. So the first one here, uh, the Remembered Forgotten Serial Chip. Now, this was a project that was in uh, Rainbow Magazine way, way back. And it was basically to put a 6551 serial chip, the same as in the RS232 pack, internally in your Cocoa. So you didn't have to take any slots. You didn't need a multi-pack if you wanted to run the disk drive at the same time. And she shows you the prototype board that she did back in the day. So she kind of has a discussion on that and switching to 6551A, which fixes some of the bugs in the original 6551. Now, if I remember correctly from this, because I know a few people in our computer club here did this too, rather than have to spend the money in our city do pack, is that it actually was addressed the same. So basically terminal programs like Ultim Term and Greggy Term and Mikey Term and all the rest of them would work fine with this. You didn't have to do any weird twisting around and stuff. It would actually just work. Um, and she's also talking about you know, adding stuff like a real-time clock, et cetera, too. So uh, for those who have not done that internal mod, it, it looks fairly simple. It's not a complicated circuit, as you can tell there. But it's a way, if you don't have a multi-pack or you don't have the desk space to plug one in, even the mini, this is a way for you to actually get a full-blown R32 port out of it. So that was the first thing she mentioned. The second one here um, is a rendering of an, I'll probably have to pretty well literally read what she said here, kind of explain it. Uh, but this is a case design, a 3D printed case design she's got here to hold an adapt, a SCART adapter that would screw into the bottom of a Cocoa 3 case, but look more elegant. It wouldn't strain the RGB connector on the Cocoa 3 quite as bad. Now, I don't have the whole SCART thing here. 
for you people that do, how exactly does it hook up? I'm just wondering what she's talking about with the uh, straining the RGB cable. Is it the cable's heavy and yanks on a bit of what what you might be talking about there? I could see where this would be helpful. The big old SCART connector could go into this block and then the little wimpy DIN RGB thing wouldn't have to carry the weight of that assembly if you pull the cocoa, move the cocoa around. Oh, okay. Aren't the SCART connectors though thicker than the spacing underneath the Coco 3? Th that may be why she wants to go up in that hole under the expansion connector. Oh, it's going to be mounted in that little, okay, yeah, that would make sense. Oh, okay. So you guys actually know what you're talking about on this. That's good, because I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Whew. You would use that mystery space for something useful, which... Now, this mystery space yeah. is under the cartridge connector, you said? Yeah, there's an empty hole in the bottom of the Coco 3. The Coco 2 is mine. Coco 2 has it also. Okay. That, that doesn't seem to do anything, but it would be very good for this. Okay, I think I know. Yeah, okay. On the bottom of the case itself, on the outside of the case, there's a whole kind of... There's an indent. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, that makes sense then, yeah. And she said she has plans that the finished case would be chamfered and, and radius which are allowed for the 3D printing. It would have a screw-on or slide-on lid, too, to kind of cover it up. So, have, have any of you, I've actually had a chance to look through comments, have any of you uh, reacted to her and talked to her about it? Or? It's like Alan has and Scott Kelly. I have, I have Coco Man's uh, switcheroo cables. I mean, he just uh, provides an extension that just slides out from the Coco and sits behind it. So. Oh, so the, the SCART connector isn't actually near the bottom of the cocoa. It's like no, no, back it's, past yeah, the cable. Yeah, I actually okay. have a wallaby so I can have it split. So, yeah, it's nowhere close. So. Okay. Yeah, I just used a piece of ribbon cable like a, like the like I originally used to go into the SCART, SCART connector. Okay. So, like I said, it's two different alternate ways of doing it. You can either have the extended cable from the cocoa like, like it currently is, for a, say a CM8 or something, and then go to the SCART after it, or you could do the SCART directly in that little cubby hole that's under there. Okay, cool. That's what it looks like. Next up, this is really cool, I thought. Glenn Soggy, who we had as a guest as part of the Image Producers panel we did a couple years back on Cocoa Talk. Now, the Image Producers was a software company. They did stuff for other computers besides Cocoa, but they were fairly early on. And the case of the Cocoa itself, they were actually one of the few companies selected by Radio Shack Tandy to produce Cocoa software before the Cocoa One was released. And he, when they were on, they were talking about they had this breadboard nailed onto plywood version of the Cocoa One in February of 1980 that was shipped to them for doing development on. They had to lock it into an office with a key key locked uh, door that you had to have a passcode to get into even access the machine. And it was kind of precarious because it was all mounted on plywood, et cetera. And they was talking about you had to you know, sign to get into the room, even to touch it. You weren't allowed to take anything home. So at any rate, uh, he was going through some of his old stuff here, and he actually found some line-printed listings of the assembly source code for Super Bust Out with comments. So you'll see some like things here, too, like you know, you know, let the ROM do it for getting a, a key press or something um, and checking what key it is. And this is actually using the same routine that uh, George has mentioned on his assembly language tutorials, too. So. And he was doing the official polecat. So it's kind of neat to see some of this historical source code. 
um with and he comments i have to say he comments a lot better than most people i know from back in this era most people there that put a comment per routine maybe not every line type thing so i'm impressed he's he's had that many comments he did mention because the coco actually wasn't a fully developed machine at the point they were doing this that uh, they had to do cross development they were doing this on another system with eight inch discs to write the coco stuff and they download it across the cassette cable to try it for the serial cable to actually try the code out when they were doing it and i remember in super busout's case too he was trying to get all these different features like gravity and all this other stuff in here and he was really pressed for space so he spent as much time trying to get it shrunk the last 20 or 30 bytes to get it running as he wrote the entire main game in, like it took him like a month to do each of those just to get it to fit on the 4k rom i think it was maybe it was even 2k that tandy mandated it had to fit in because tandy was cheap couldn't just make the chip bigger and add more features no and he has some funny comments so he's got the middle one here like you know he's pulling all the stuff from stack and home again home again jiggity which you know sounds like something i can imagine rick adams throwing into some of his comments At any rate, uh, he's not sure about copyrights on Super Busta because this was done as he was a contractor for image producers, and the image producers had a contract with Tandy where I can't remember how the licensing worked, but he's a bit worried that if he put the entire thing up, there might be a legal issue. Now, with Tandy being gone, that's pro or you know, kind of had shut down and stuff. I'm not sure if that still applies, um, but he's just being safe on that. But it's, it's cool he has it, and you know, maybe we'll get permission someday when we can actually see the entire source of one of the very first programs for the Coco ever written. Next up, now this is a follow-up to the story we did last week where Antonio had shown off uh, some hand-drawn commercial they did for a computer desk system that his dad had designed 30-some-odd years ago. And uh, he was quite happy he got mentioned on the show, so he decided to go make it a bit more modernized professionally, actually colorized it all, so some of the stuff stands out better. So you can actually see you know, the differences, uh, or the fact that it's actually a Cocoa that was used in this commercial flyer that his dad had produced for these uh, cases here, or desks, I should say. And you can tell it's a Cocoa, and now it's easier with the gray card, but you can actually see there with the design of the way the keyboard is sloped. This is an old uh, you know, gray style Cocoa with the, uh, you know, the vertical drives and the cartridge connector and printers, et cetera, too. So this is kind of like the modernized version of it. Well, that was pretty cool. And it's, it's a bit of history, too, because his dad actually, you know, formed this furniture computer desk making business based on, you know, having a cocoa and building a desk that would fit everything properly to, to use it. Next up here, John Laurie uh, showed off uh, Simon Jonason's uh, 3D ray tracing thing. Now, this is... Um, I think Simon's own version of it. There was a version in Hot Cocoa that did something similar, which is a little bit slower. And I know Eric Gavrilak had actually taken that code and sped it up about twice as much too. And he released that about a year or two ago. Um, but it's basically, you, you give it a set of points in 3D space and you tell it which points to connect as lines. And then you can actually rotate them, move them around, flip them. Um, he's got some perspective stuff in there so you can kind of warp it around. So I'll just play a little bit of the video because it's kind of hey. a cool little demo. Hey, hey. That's kind of doing the standard rotations of all three axes. And if you've seen the war, the game um, Space War by Spectral, which is kind of the a version of the Star Trek simulator from the arcade, it's using techniques like this too to draw the Klingon ships and various things too. 
So it's a technique we've actually been using. It's Rommel 3D, Rommel's Revenge, use stuff like this too. Next up after that, uh, Daniel O'Connor, Nick's fellow Aussie. Crikey. Did I say that right? Um, Twice enough. <laughs> I'll take Australian lessons as soon as you learn your geography. Um, <laughs> set up a couple of Cocoa 3s. Now she's got both a, a more standard Cocoa 3 and one that's a bit you know modified and stuff, uh, upgraded, etc. Um, but basically ran Sockmaster's uh, Matrix program. For those of you who haven't seen it, kind of simulates that whole you know, green screen dissolving letters thing that the Matrix movies use so well um, with some sound effects in the back. Oh, this is a fairly quick little uh, clip, so I'll just play it. I remember when Sock wrote this demo, it was just pretty cool to see this running on a Coco right after the thing came out. But in here, you can see like on her left one, she's got like a power on light and the reset switch, reset switch that's been modified to be on the top so it's easier to reach. And on the one on the right has got a power light also added, but it's also got Ed Snyder's, uh, you know, mechanical keyboard, which I've got on one of my Cocos here. And oh man, that thing's nice. Loud. I mean, don't use it you know, next to people trying to sleep or anything, but awesome feel to it. And the Coco 3 keyboard wasn't bad. It's pretty decent, but that, that definitely is better. Next up, uh, Ron Devo, are you still on? Well, he must be sleeping. You're right. Ron, are you still, are you sleeping? <laughs> yeah, it was like he must have uh, stepped out. Either stepped out or he fell asleep. One of the two. <laughs> this is actually a, a story he brought up here. Like the electronic book is something that I don't remember too many people actually having. I do remember seeing it advertised. And it was kind of like what was a pressure sensitive sheet or something for those of you who actually had one. Did it connect notes. to the joystick port? So it was like a, it was like a koala pad or whatever, but you had overlays you touched. Okay. Because I had seen stuff. it before and I know the uh, Cocoa Crew had done a, a special on how to program for it, et cetera, too. That was one of their technical discussions a few years back, too. And there's a few games and a few educational programs that actually did use it. There's a couple of Dragon games actually that use it, too, which was kind of a surprise. Um, but one thing I didn't realize, and I'm assuming this must be the UK version of the manual, because uh, I don't remember seeing that here, but it actually tells you how to hook it up to a Tandy 16K extended basic color computer, and probably the Dragon would work well, and the Acorn BBC Model B. I had no idea this was a cross-platform hardware device. Um, I don't know if anybody else knew that, or if it's on uh, further systems beyond the uh, BBC and the, and the Cocoa is officially here. I know it was on the Dragon, because there's some games that support it. But I don't know, maybe some of the other UK or European computers also had support for this too. I have no idea. I'm, I did not I'm, know this. I'm going to guess it's that adapter for BBC Model 3 to Tandy Computer 26-7228 is the magic there. So they took the Cocoa one and made an adapter for it, basically. Apparently they did, because there it lists, you know, in the manual here and gives a Radio Shack part number for it, no less. Okay, so I wonder if they did that for any other machines too then. It's definitely using the joystick port, so. Yeah, analog. And that's analog, too. So, I mean, not too yeah. many of the computers back then had analog six. Most were digital. Well, the Apple II and the IBM had analog. So did you guys have electronic book adapters, too, then? Uh, I think they did. I know we had the Koala pad for the Apple II and for the Commodore also. And they used it. The Commodore has digital joystick, but it also has paddles, which are basically what the Apple is. is two paddle ports give you that analog joystick port. Um, 
And then the IBM, I think, was just all analog like the Apple was. Um, and I'm pretty sure I'd seen something like this for the Apple. Okay. Apple had lots of educational software, so I definitely would think they'd have something like that. Yeah, because, I mean, if it's all analog programming, I mean, to convert the programs over, you just have to basically remap the graphics system, maybe some sound, which, I mean, everybody was doing when they are doing cross-platform development back then. So having something that the hardware is very similar between them would make the porting much easier. So I would imagine if, you know, the Apple, et cetera, had supported the same style of analog that they would have had a port of this. But I'd never heard of it being on anything about the Cocoa before. I thought it was a Cocoa unique thing up until Ron posted this. The fact that there's a Tandy catalog number for an adapter to a BBC computer is kind of astounding to me. Well, Tandy, Tandy in, um, and Radio Shack in the UK was a bit less restricted. It was kind of like Australia. Like Australia could sell Australian-made products in the Tandy store. In Canada, we were allowed to sell the same stuff the States did, and that's it. You No third party, nothing outside of Tandy Radio Shack. You weren't selling Tom Mix. You weren't selling Rainbow. You weren't doing any of that kind of stuff. Uh, where in Australia, I think it was a bit more loose. Um, Nick, you can probably attest to that. Yeah, when they bought more, your programs, yeah. for example. And Craig's they carried well. my stuff. Yeah, and Craig's. And so, the UK, from what I remember seeing, they actually, some of the Tandys, now this might have been kind of like, I know in the States and Canada, there was two different versions of owning a Radio Shack store. There was one where you're completely affiliated with Radio Shack, and there's also the, what do they call it, affiliate store or something? Where um, you were allowed to sell your own stuff as well as Tandys? I think they're franchises. Yeah, franchises, well, yeah. Yeah, well... Yeah, there's there's stores like we have them here too that are uh, independent electronic stores, but they also sell Radio Shack stuff. That's what most of the ones remaining are now. Yeah, because I've seen a few uh, pictures from the UK stores from back in the day where they were selling Dragon and Cocoa software on the shelves from third parties, which you'd never see here. Maybe in the, some of those other stores Mark's mentioning, I didn't see any of those in Canada. I only saw franchise stores, so you were strictly Radio Shack, and that's it. So this was a case where it was bad to live in the city because in Dallas, we only had company stores and they yeah. only sold company stuff. <laughs> and that's pretty well everywhere I've ever been in, in, in Canada, no matter what province. Now, maybe somebody else can correct me. Nick Morota, I don't know if you had any non-franchise stores that uh, were allowed to deal with third parties. Well, I never saw them here. Or is Nick still on the call? No, I'm here just looking for a mute button. Um, no, I think we're pretty much the same restrictions as you. Okay. That, that's really too bad. I wish there was more non-franchise stores because that would have shown people the market on any of the Tandy products, not just the Cocoa, but particularly if the Cocoa in our case was a lot bigger than just what Radio Shack sold. And there was a ton of stuff. Now they did kind of get an express order in the late eighties a little bit, but they didn't really advertise it. You had to know it existed to ask for the catalog and they wouldn't just have it sitting out for people to look at. But there was so much more hardware, so much more software, and a lot of it better than the Tandy native stuff that they oh, yeah. they probably would have sold a lot better if, if they had. I mean, as it is, they still sold you know several million Cocos at least that we know of. But... I guess they're called independent franchises. So those are ones that are not strictly Radio Shack. Yeah, because I, I did see one when I was driving through the States might have been when I was going to one of the early Rainbow Fests, actually. I might have stopped at one in some little town in Wisconsin or something like that. That uh, I went in and they were selling a whole bunch of stuff that's not Archer. It's not, you know, Tandy Electronics type stuff. It was a whole bunch of other things mixed in with. And it was like, holy cow. I didn't know you could do that. Okay, next up after that, we have uh, Patrick Pel Pelche. 
who has put the Thor BBS online, so you can tell them that to this, and it's dedicated to the Coco, and it supports ANSI standard, which works great in uh, Sox Twilight Terminal, looked great in Roger Taylor's Netmate. I was going to ask Ron if, if uh, he's tried it because he's a big fan of Netmate. Unfortunately, he's sleeping, so he can't. Um, but basically, he's also got the ASCII version of it too. So if you don't have an ANSI terminal program, if you or you know if you don't have a terminal program that supports the graphical ANSI, which is what we're kind of talking about here, it's a bit of a confusion there because that was a confusion back in the '80s too. ANSI technically is just the color and escape code sequences to change the color to move the cursor, to clear a part of the screen, et cetera. It's not all the fancy IBM character set. That's actually separate. That was an IBM thing. But it became so synonymous with it that when you talk about ANSI these days, or even by the late 80s, you have to include both at the same time. So a program like Ultimate Term supported the technical ANSI standard. So you could run an ANSI BBS, but anything that was supposed to show up a little cross hatches and fancy patterns and stuff would just show up like you know, European characters or something instead in the right color, but you know didn't look right. So what he's got here is answer here is one you want to run Twilight Terminal Netmate to get the full effect, though it should work in Ultimate Term if you're running it through you know, one of these um, Wi-Fi modems, etc. But it's nice having a dedicated Coco BBS back on, and he's been kind of figuring out how to get things you know, fixed up for people that don't have ANSI or trying to run from, say, Coco 1 and 2, and they're running, I don't know, Greggy Term in a graphics mode or Mikey Term or something like that. So he wants to get it running uh, for everybody. So for those of you that have Wi-Fi modems and have used your real Cocos to get on the internet or maybe even through the emulators through DriveWire or something, um, have any of you tried out the Thor BBS? I haven't had a chance to do that myself yet. So does anybody know what it looks like or what he's all got on there? The phone number. What's that? What's the phone number? Well, it's a Telnet BBS, so it's... Yeah, port 23 on ThorBBS underscore DDNS underscore net. Oh, well, sorry, replace the underscores with dots. Port 23 is your standard Telnet port. So. Yeah. I do know so, a couple of people had actually tested it on real Cocos besides themselves here, so I know it it works if you have the right Wi-Fi modem set up. I was hoping Ron would be around for that because I know he does this all the time. I drive wire and drive term should be able to uh, hit that as well. There is some ANSI support in that. Okay. Have you, have you tried this uh, Picker BBS yet? Uh, no, since you just put, put it up on the screen. Okay. I don't know if you caught on Facebook because it's actually been up for Not a few on days. Facebook. Uh, anyway, uh, I would love to have a follow up next week. So if somebody, now that you know about it, actually can go give it a try, maybe even do a little demo to show what's on it if it's pretty interesting. I'd love to show that on the, on the, show next week that's my my call to the coco coco talk community i can't write a telnet client by next week <laughs> there was one in the k9q already i mean we had a working telnet client back in the late 80s already but hmm. i think this source code i think even is available for it you need to adapt it to a wisnet chip yeah, because I think that one went through slip or yeah, I think it was slip on serial ports back in the day when that was a thing. The younger people won't even know what that is. <laughs> it was sad is what it was. <laughs> I mean, it most people... It was better than the alternative, which was nothing. Yeah, well, PPP was better, but it was a lot more CPU intensive. So the Cocoa, I don't think we ever got a fully working PPP client, but uh, slip was pretty simple. I mean, slip on serial, does that involve a banana? <laughs> 
you're funny. The first 10 times you tried to get a connection, yes. <laughs> anyway, next up, CyberHog Technologies did a follow-up to a video they did back in May. Um, and this is upgrading a Cobo 2. So in this case, they've upgraded to 64K of RAM. That's the first part of the video. And then the second part is uh, doing a do-it-yourself cartridge build, which you put Arkanoid onto a cartridge. So the first part here, and I, I went, I actually commented on this because he, he's apparently only got Color Basic on there. So when he installed it and he did a print mem, he's getting 31,015 bytes left on a cassette system. And he was kind of confused by that because most of the places he's seen when people are telling you to make sure your 32K or upgrade works is it'll give you 24,000, whatever it is. And that's because extended basic reserve 6K for a graphic screen by default, which of course you can change the peak. So I let him know about that because he was kind of confused and he thought maybe something was wrong. But I'll just play a little bit of this part and then I'll skip ahead to his uh, cartridge. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode. Too loud? I think it's going nope, to be good. a short one, uh, which I'm going to call um, the Coco 2 Part 2. Um, as this machine uh, came back to life uh, by um, replacing the ROM the other day, if you haven't seen the video, the link is going to be down below and thanks to my friend Peter. Um, now I have to do other things um, on this Coco um, and the first one I should do is to uh, upgrade the ROM because it's something simple and, and rather useful. So we're going to be replacing the existing uh, RAM chips. All the chips are socketed and uh, it's going to be an easy operation. And as you can see on the screen, we have uh, 14K or something, 14.6 um, kilobytes of RAM available to the user. So it's a big deal. We're going to make it uh, up to 64K after all. The only critical thing for this operation is to short uh, JP1 as indicated onto the motherboard in order for the system to detect 64k chips um, on the right side. Um, those are the old ones, uh, the 4517s, which are going to be replaced soon uh, with the 41. Now fast forward a little bit here, so he does the upgrade. And now he's getting the 31,000 bytes free, which you said was a bit confusing because that indicates 32K, not 64. And of course, BASIC does not know how to have a clue how to use that as 64K unless you patch it. And that usually involves switching to 64K mode, or 64K RAM mode, copying the ROMs into there and then patching them afterwards. Um, so I kind of left a little bit of a detail on that. And then the second part of the video, because the uh, post in memory before, gets into the... Uh, Cartridge. Now, this is using uh, one that you can actually get under the GPL license and print yourself. I think by Mark J. Blair. I think we featured this on the show before, but he kind of goes through the whole what kind of chips is support, how do you actually program it, etc. And the end result is he actually got Arkanoid running off of his own. So back cartridge. to the demo mode. <laughs> I can, I can admit I don't have a joystick. Remember the joystick for. Uh, the Coco <coughs> is the round type, not the classic D-sub 9-pin uh, uh, style ones. You so he's planning on getting a, a joystick upgrade or a, a joystick for the Coco a little bit later on. and um, But he's just successfully got the uh, the cartridge burned and it actually runs fine. So pretty cool um, for beginning hardware.
Next up after that, and uh, Grant, you can talk probably a little bit this too, because we were actually getting Steve to demo this on our uh, test stream last night. But basically, he's been working with Ron Klein on testing the uh, Coco Pi, which now has X Windows built in, so you can actually run multiple things at once, uh, including, say, an MC10 plus VCC plus, or old VCC, I should say, plus XROAR or MAME, et cetera, to run you know the MC10, Dragons, Cocos, et cetera, on your emulations. And he goes through the uh, some of the design changes. Like now, last he put us in a video earlier in the week of some requested changes he'd like to see in the MC10 because the MC10, basically with the MCX128 uh, ROM cart or uh, DriveWire Pi Drive or what is it called? The MC10. It's a different name for this DriveWire style server. I can't remember the top of my head. MC E M C E. Ah, right. Thank you. But he found it a bit difficult because Jim Gary has wrote so darn many programs that you know you have to wade through hundreds and hundreds of them trying to find anything. And he was wondering if there's you know some ways to simplify this. And he kind of wondered out loud in a video earlier in the week. And you know, a couple of days later, Ron had already sent up a patch version of it uh, to address some of those concerns. So Stevie said to play just the second video, which is kind of showing the result uh, change. You can see you know the advancements on the MC10. It's about three and a half minutes, so I'll just play it and let Stevie speak for himself. And if he happens to be listening to this and wants to pop on for any further commentary, you got three and a half minutes to do it. Okay, thanks to Ron Klein and Jim Gary. Here is the first step in me realizing what I would consider to be the MC10 Holy Grail. I think if we can add a menu launcher to this, this would be awesome. But in the meantime, so the first thing that you'll notice now from our Raspberry Pi download menu is that there's an option to pull uh, Jim Gary's MC10 GitHub repo, which um, we've already done. And then the second thing we've done is we've actually updated the MC server to have some default um, MC paths pointing to that repo. So now when you boot up an MC10 in, um, I'll just go ahead and I'll, I'll boot it up clean. So you can see what Willis is talking about here. But um, if I go ahead and I boot up the MC10-128 with MCX Basic, and I choose option one, which is MCX Basic without being too big, um, as soon as I type in dir, we've got everything here. So we have, um, we have the MC server uh, pre pointed to the location where Jim Gary's um, GitHub files are. And then at any given time, if he updates that GitHub, all we have to do here is go to the menu, menu option six, hit uh, enter, and then boom, it's gonna look for updates, and if they're updates, it's gonna pull them. So we're gonna be able to make this a little bit more automated, a little bit more plug and play. And, um, and does, has, he, has Jim added something? Oh, golly gosh darn. Uh, it looks like Jim may have already added something too. <laughs> I don't know if this means he added something or not, but yeah. Anyway, so we uh, we're working on this. When I say we, I mean Ron Klein is working on this. But um, I kind of had the idea um, of wouldn't it be awesome if we could fire up an MC10 in Cocoa Pie emulated and just have a real easy way to browse and launch software um, from the emulated MC10. And I think we are one step in in that direction. The, the only Thing I see right now is there's so much stuff here that uh, just kind of knowing where to go and what to do but I can go ahead and load area 51.c10 
load it in, and I can run it, and then boom, there it is. So um, there's a ton of Jim Gary software, which is a great place to start learning how to enjoy the MC10, and hopefully we can get more software in here and then maybe somehow make it uh, a little more menu launchable at some point, if that's even possible. But um, good progress. Thanks, Jim, for pointing uh, Ron Klein in the right direction, and thanks, Ron Klein, for getting this implemented so quickly. I'm really excited about uh, where the latest Cocoa Pie image what it's going to be able to do for us, and uh, I'd really love to see some more uh, MC10 goodies in this image just to get more people having a quick and easy way to kind of pick up and play with the MC10 and see what it's all about and check out all the software for it. So hopefully you like this preview, and for the creative minds out there who both know of software libraries and also can maybe help us figure out a way to launch a menu. I don't know if these menus work over the... Uh, serial protocol versus the disk protocol but a menu launcher would be super cool and super helpful to someone out there like i know darren ottery and robert sieg had done that if you guys can put your thinking caps on and help us find a way to make this like a coco sdc explorer experience for mc10 software that would be freaking awesome so anyway that's that's the update there now i just noticed there's some chat comments that are just coming in right now too that are related as well so mikey who does the actual pi drive wire uh, and uh, first of all, Mikey, I'm stunned you're still awake because we're doing news right now. Um, said, Ron and Stevie reached out to me about some minor issues with Pi Drivewire, which I'll be working on uh, these over the next week. Jim Gary said, I have added an MCX subder with some tweaked MCX specific versions of the programs because the MCX, of course, is the hardware add-on with extra RAM, et cetera, that you can actually run some programs that wouldn't run on a normal MC10, even with the 16K RAM upgrade. So that'll help organize that a little bit better. Um, so that, that, that's pretty cool that there's some of these updates that Steve just talked about in that video that he's still looking for already, you know, being worked on some of the bug fixes, et cetera. I know, uh, Grant, when we tried doing this demo on the stream here, we definitely had a few issues. Mm -hmm. um, I think one was the Becker port had to be on or off for the Cocoa 3 to run. Otherwise, it freezes up and you have to reset it, toggle it or something. And Right. Of course, he had some fun trying to get some MC10. Every time I suggested to run something MC10, it didn't work. Basically, is what happened. Yeah, pretty much actually everything <laughs> was not working except for the ROM packs. Because there was also an issue with the uh, sub uh, menus or subdirectories. I'm sorry that he was having. Yeah. That was the other one, but I'm sure those will get fixed here pretty soon. Yeah, and the the problem is is that you know when you're pulling stuff live like Mame updates, Mame updates sometimes break Mame for the Cocoa just because they don't test it that much. We've got that issue where you know don't use this version, wait for the next one, or go back one, you know, to get stuff to work. So that's just unfortunately a common thing. The nice thing is that Jim, Gary, myself, and a few others too that have you know software repositories, we do the nitrogen ease of use. Obviously, Jim does the MC10 stuff. Is that uh, Ron has already set it up to go pull, and we just make a common file name. So anytime we do updates, we just copy that file over top, and then you can automatically update it from the Pi. You don't have to like go out, you know, hunting for stuff and updating this program and that program. Type thing. You get the whole update in one shot. That's all becomes quite automatic, which is very very nice. Um, this also, for those who don't know, um, this is going to be a unified one. So originally you needed a version for the Pi 3, you needed a version for the Pi 4, you need a version for the Pi 400. This will be a unified one. So this will actually will be one common thing you download and install that'll run in all three of those, Pi 3, Pi 4, Pi 400. Obviously the speed differences, if you want to run like three virtual machines at once, would work better on the later hardware, like a Pi 4 or Pi 400 because they're faster machines to begin with. But you'll be able to run this without changes basically, or very minor changes of like, you know, settings or config stuff um, from any of those three platforms. 
and they're hoping to get this out sometime in by the end of August. That's not a firm guarantee, but you know, somewhere in that ballpark. And then any of you that have pies or are interested in getting a pies, then you want to get something all preset to do all the Coco stuff. Coco 1, 2, 3, Dragon 32, Dragon 64, Dragon 200, uh, MC10, MC10 with the MCX 128, etc. With and without pie drive wire and a bunch of other things, this this will be your go-to package to get it all in one shot. So definitely looking forward to it. I'm glad that they're actively working on it. And uh, bugs are getting fixed as we go. Yep, we'll I make think... a big announcement and a demo on the show here once it's released. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm thinking they, uh, Stevie said something, maybe a possible release in August or September, I think is what he said. So let's hope that's the case. Okay, cool. And for you MC10 fans that want to try the Thor BBS, there is a Pi DriveWire terminal for MC10 as well that works over that MC peripheral. Oh, cool. Not ANSI, I'm presuming, though. It would probably be ASCII. Uh, yeah, I don't remember. I know I booted it and got it working, but I think I was just hitting plain text, so I didn't test the ANSI stuff. Okay. So that's a cool bit of MC10 news this week, in addition to all of Jim Geary's you know, mega game releases. Next up, we're getting into the Dragon stuff here. We've got a couple stories here. So the first one in the Dragon Facebook group, uh, Stephen Goodwin, has announced a book launch of a book called 20 Go to 10 Retro Computing by Numbers. So this is going to cover a, a variety of things. And there, it's based on numbers. Now, I'm not quite sure how that works. And maybe some of the people that and the Dragon group of people here that are actually in our chat right now, there's a few of them in there, uh, might be able to you know, kind of explain <clears throat> this a little bit better than I can. Um, but basically, it'll be available both in digital formats and in physical formats. And it's a book of numbers, is how they describe it, a book of numbers that describes the many facets of computing history, focusing on the golden age of retro computers of the 1980s and 1990s. It covers the hardware, the software, and the social history of the era, showing how they're linked through numbers such as 48K, C90, and 35899, of some of which I understand what that means. Um, and it will include some Dragon material. He, he was very specific with that. And he said the more Dragon people are sponsored, the more the Dragon will get mentioned. So that's kind of an enticement. So that's the book cover right there. And then the description of the book on its own site here. And it's of course a, you know, a fun me thing. And you know, the different prices, if you want the physical printed book, if you want the uh, digital download version of the book, if you want a hardback versus a cover one, paper cover. Some include some games included with it as well. I mean, it looks like a pretty interesting book. I don't know how many people in the <laughs> chat here might actually know more specifics about it, but I'd be curious to see what they, what they think about it. I couldn't, you know, comment on the uh, accuracy of Dragon-related stuff because I, we haven't had a Dragon special yet, so I'm not sure about everything yet. And that is it for the news this week. Are we sure? Uh, why? <laughs> Did I miss something? No, no, just want to make sure. All right, everybody's awake up here. Let's do, do a commercial here real quick, and then we'll... Oh, wait, I got a message here from Nick. Ah, uh, see? I, <laughs> I knew it! I knew it! <laughs> Sorry about that. Okay, so what is this, Nick? This is a joke. <laughs> you wasted my time for a joke. Well, I thought people <laughs> would get a good laugh. Okay, I'll share the screen. 
and I'll let you explain it because I have no idea what this is. I don't even know what it's all about. It's a joke. Okay, it's an eBay something. Oh yeah, yeah. This is the one I I shared in Discord. Oh, you've already yeah, that's right. I came across is this. this yeah, I came across it in uh, on eBay. And I'm like, wow, you're making a lot of money off of this, Nick. Well, <laughs> it, absolute scam, eh? Uh, $250 for a, uh, well, under $20 program back in the day. But that's funny. It says rare game. <laughs> rare. You can, you can I see several it. errors here. One, it's not that rare. Yeah. Two, it, it doesn't require a 512K Coco 3. It just needs not one that one, no. I know. It's <laughs> 250 bucks. You and postage is another 24. Is that the yeah. original baggie? Uh, no, that was what I did later on because it's on disc. So this is a version that I probably made for way back when I did uh, Penfest. So this is a copy I had selling at Penfest. But uh, yeah, it wasn't two hundred. Yeah, because this actually has the Radio Shack catalog number, so this is the original. Oh yeah, it's 10. still the it's the original. Um, it's one of the original color packages because I had a lot of those made like excess. So I, I packaged it that way, but they were sold on cassette in Tandy. So this was um, a disc version I made to sell at the sh at the fest. Oh, so it is rare. Well, you can download it for free. <laughs> so anyway. Actually, my I favorite comment in the chat here from Jeremy Landry, it's the rare 512K version. It's so rare that even the author of the game doesn't know about it. Well, they, well that's possible. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Exactly. So if we all send Nick some floppies, he can really devalue it by just making a few more floppy copies. Probably, yeah. And this has been in, in on eBay for months. So I I don't know how this works. Wonder why. <laughs> well, there was there was also a donut dilemma at around the same price. Uh, and it's been there for over a year. So I don't know how this works or how eBay somebody's just trying to milk the market and nobody's biting, I think. Is you would think eBay would clamp down on, on this. Nope. Sort well, it's of not stuff. up to them to determine the cost of an item. That's whatever the market supports. It yeah. be higher because they take a percentage. I so guess the so. higher it goes for, the more they're going to make. What you should do is undercut them completely. You can sell an autographed copy by the original author for like half this price. Yeah. And make or, coin like crazy. Or just simply say, oh, look, I've made a thousand copies of this available for free. So this game is not <laughs> rare anymore. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, and, and I, thought... I just noticed Rondell Ville's back in the call here too. It's, it's, okay. it's too bad you're away for a bit there because uh, we had a couple stories I was trying to bring you in on. Oh, geez. Well, I, I my wife spotted a table and chairs in somebody's yard for free. It was nice. <laughs> so look at me, I'm drenched. <laughs> <laughs> I went and picked it up and brought it to the house. It was pretty okay. nice. I, I'm trying to remember, like the one story was on the the post you did about the uh, electronic book. Yeah, the oh, yeah. comment. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting because, uh, you know, they're promoting another computer, sort of. Yeah, actually, Rick Yeoman was taking a close look at it. And it's actually the electronic book is the Tandy version of it, but there's an adapter they added for the BBC Micro. It's actually mentioned a little bit in that diagram. There's a little adapter you plug in between. Yeah. The book and and the BBC. And were, were there other books that did that? Same well, that's thing. what we're speculating. Like, did some other? It would require because of, that plugs into the joystick port. It would require analog joystick capability, which not all the machines have. Now, Mark had mentioned Mark Overholzer mentioned like the Apple 
uh, did have, you know, the same style analog sticks on there too. So that's possible that, you know, the Apple could have had some of that, but he doesn't know of it personally. So, and if somebody can refresh my memory, cause I'm old and I don't remember things. Uh, there was a second story I was trying to bring Ron into was, was it there? Yeah, yeah, there was, but I don't remember what it was. Be not important. Carry on. <laughs> That's probably vitally important, just that I'm old. Yeah. Flash, we're all getting older. <laughs> was it something on my um, Ron's garage? Um, no, I think it was something that you have physically have that you could have commented on, but most oh. of us don't. I can't remember okay. what it was now. Oh well. Okay. You'll have to review it, uh, watch the show part of the show you missed, and the next week you'll right. clue us in on it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Awesome. There. That's officially the end of the news. <laughs> Are we sure? No, but we'll go with it. All right. We will take Crikey. a we will take a commercial break and then we will uh is anybody have anything for uh project acquisitions? And updates? going once waiting on parts yeah well unfortunately with the chip shortage that might be a while hey patrick yeah, sitting patrick are you um gonna fill in for the guy that died in uh zz top uh can you play can't bass sing, can't sing that well no <laughs> i don't that's right dusty would play bass and synth and sang so yeah yeah that's our yep. bummer all right cool all right here's a commercial break and we'll be back with closing thoughts after these messages, we'll be right back. Fletcher, I don't need that report tomorrow. Great, JT. I need it tonight. But, JT... Fletcher saved $300 on her office away from the office. Radio Shack's revolutionary Model 100 computer. It's a word processor, phone directory, and dialer. It even communicates with the office computer. Fletcher, how's that report? Fletcher. Radio Shack's Model 100. Save $300 and put it to work. You'll go far, Fletcher. <laughs> You'll go far. And now, Coco Thoughts by Samuel Gimes. On holidays, Uncle JT would entertain us with stories of his business conquests and his assistant who would meet any deadline that he imposed, no matter how ridiculous. Well, until she shot him in the face, that is. Hi, this is the award-winning Alan Huffman of Subbeat the Software, and you're watching Stevie Fall Off Cliffs. What's going on, guys? Stevie Stroh here, and I want to say thank you so much for being part of this adventure with us. It's been such a great experience in doing Coco Talk every week, and the support we get is just amazing. And so the fact that you watch and listen is all the reward that we need. However, if you would like to become a patron of the show and offer some financial assistance towards the production and hosting costs of the show, we do have a Patreon site available for that, and you can reach that by going to our website at cocotalk.live and clicking on the Patreon link. But just do us a favor and watch and listen to the show. This is not the Joey Serial Switch. This is the Joey Serial Switch. 
control up to three serial devices. Order yours today at cocoman.biz. Radio Shack, America's technology store. Right. This Christmas, Tandy has a very special offer. A family color computer pack to take away at a very special price. This family computer comes complete with software and costs an incredible $449, a saving of $241.69. It's powerful, educational, and ideal for the young and young at heart. The easy way to start computing. The color computer family pack from Tandy. Get it while it's hot. Tandy, the biggest electronic store in Australia. Yeah. Hi, I'm Tim. Playing Daggereth like that idiot from the book. <laughs> You're watching Coco Talk. All right. Well, we are now at the end of the show. Does oh. anybody have? <laughs> you, are you? Who's favorite part? Uh, that'd be Nick's favorite part. He's very. Go back to sleep. He's very. Take a nap again. Rocky. All right. Anybody have any closing thoughts or announcements or anything we should make before we uh, push the button? Get get your questions ready about the Dragon for the August 14th show. That's going to be a monster show. It's going to be awesome. We have a ton of guests. We have guests that will be coming back later on to get more detail. There's new hardware, new software, old hardware, old software. You know, the whole European market. Uh, the Amigos are going to be guesting on a, a Segway segment at the beginning of the uh, Game On Challenge. We'll be doing Dragon-specific games for two weeks in a row, too, as part of the Game On Challenge as well. Have we um, thought about going on earlier? Um, because uh, this is going to be oriented towards uh, England. I mean, we, right? we've already switched to an hour earlier than we we were were before, so I don't know if we need to go earlier yet. But because you say it might go hours, right? <laughs> yep. Yeah, but these yeah, guys, well, I mean, they, every show might go hours, but <laughs> these guys are the but are the uh, pub crawlers, though, right, Curtis? They stay up yeah, late. Yeah, I think potentially, especially after you know hanging out with us for part of a day, they probably won't want to hit a pub. So, uh... <laughs> <laughs> hey, now, hey, it's going to be a dragon special. Are we going to have uh, appropriate uh, fire prevention, you know, on, on hand just in case? Well, we really can because we're the whole show's a dumpster fire, so we're kind of at odds with that. <laughs> well, you know, dragons, you know, dragons breathe fire, right? So we're already wearing asbestos underwear. Oh, jeez. Yeah, and Ron just uh, wore his shirt into the shower, it looks like, too. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's going to be an awesome show. Uh, we'll be doing brief, briefer, you know, because we have so many guests. There's going to be like 10 to 15 minute segments of them, you know, talking about whatever no, they wanted to talk no, about. That's not going to happen. But I haven't finished yet, but then you'll be able to ask questions. So I want people to come up with questions uh, in general about the dragon, et cetera, because we actually will have some people that actually were involved with the dragon when it was first being manufactured, like Duncan Smead. So, um, but leave Curtis the real-time clock question. <laughs> I think we're looking at about two hours per. There's a guess. separate project update on that, but that's that's a few weeks out yet. So, hey Jason, are you going to orient some of your um, electronic stuff that you sell to the uh, dragon? You're going to have like dragon names or anything? Uh, well, I don't really have anything that's dragon specific right now. I don't own a dragon, but I, I'm, uh, I'm open. I'm open to that. Yeah. Cause the switcheroo is something I think would work with the dragon. I mean, some of the other stuff like the scart cable would be a bit different, of course, cause they well, have the, different input anyway. The switch, the switcheroo is the scart cable, but I, I would think or, like, sorry, the Joey, I'm thinking. The, the Joey controller switch should, uh, I believe they, they, they match, well, 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 we would have we would 
have to make one without that center pin because I don't believe the dragon has that six. Pin right, it has a five pin in, not a six pin in. You're right. Yeah, but uh, we don't even have. be added as an option. We don't even have commercials for any um, dragon anything, do we? Well, there's a reason for that. There aren't any. Oh. Right? We, we've, when in the dragon group, we we're discussing what what TV commercials I said did you guys have. The only thing they really had was um, there's a Spanish one from Spanish, after yeah. it went to Eurohard. Uh, after it left Wales, and uh, the Wales Dragon never had a TV commercial. Jeez. They only had print ad ones, so there isn't one to do. I wonder what um, the Coco Crew podcast would come up with. They always have some uh, really clever commercials on the show. Yeah, they have the pretty good audio commercials. I mean, I would like to see maybe uh, Rob Inman or somebody like that come up with a video commercial studio commercial for the show but i don't know if we'll have time to do that but we're gonna have dragon guests on it's now it's one thing i want to talk to you about ron because you're the other guy that mainly books in people for interviews um we need to come up with a, a way to keep the schedules between us because i don't want to try to have us both book an interview on the same day oh because then yeah, the show would I, I be like nothing. eight hours yeah i got nothing for you <laughs> no but when, when, when you do come up with some yeah. like, right now we have guests yeah, booked on august you. 14th 21st okay. and 28th all in a row all right i'll get with you do we have anybody for next week by chance? Anybody special? No, we're taking a bit of a breather. I did that on purpose because we're going to have so, so much stuff in a row. And plus, it's going to be a longer show than normal on the 14th, too. So I, I didn't want to you know, have the previous episodes right up leading up to that going too long. So um, that means for the uh, for the panel, make sure you bring your sleeping bags and your uh, pillows. And to be honest, we had no guests today. And we still did a three and a half hour show. Is there anybody out there that's... Um still associated with the company tano or even um you know not, not tano but you know the dragon's main company what was it called i thought um, you were just asking in general if anyone was no i mean you know show. are there any people left that well, well duncan to me that i mentioned before he's the guy that actually ported the roms from microsoft over to the dragon specific hardware okay and he's one of the guests on the dragon show so okay, he's, he was cool. in at ground zero it's funny too because he like there's so many active people in the dragon like Para and, and Kieran and you know a bunch of others that are actually actively still doing stuff hardware software wise John Whitworth etc. And when I we invited Duncan he said oh, I kind of feel like an imposter on here because I haven't touched the dragon in years and I'm going well that's not really the reason we're having you on here you were there working for them when they started that's right yeah where else are you gonna get that perspective from I mean he's he's you know done some public talks and I think he's even got a book or something that kind of mentions it but we can get some of the behind the scenes stuff that may has, may have never been revealed before if we can figure out the right questions to ask. So I'm really looking forward to that. I don't have any project acquisitions and updates. Uh, other than that, is anybody else? Nope. nope. Uh, when did the probably. dragon actually actually get delivered or come out? Uh, uh, August of 82, I think. In comparison correctly. to the Coco One? Well, the Coco One was announced in July, end of July of 1980 went on sale a couple months later. The Dragon actually was on sale at its announcement date in August of 1982. Okay. Dragon 32, that is. 64, I think, was the following year. All right. Awesome. All right. If nothing else, I will go ahead and do the outro. Yep. And I'll Push get caught up Frank. watching all those videos. Go ahead, <laughs> Jason. Oh, he... Push the button, Frank. All right. Pushing the button.
This concludes another episode of Coco Talk, the world's leading live talk show featuring the Tandy Color Computer. For all things Coco Talk, visit us on the web at cocotalk.live. We'd love to hear from you. Send feedback, suggestions, even segments via email to cocotalk at cocotalk.live. Consider supporting the show with a purchase of merchandise from our retro swag shop at 8bit256.com. If you'd like to become a patron of the show, click on the Patreon link on our website, cocotalk.live. Cocotalk would not exist without the community, its cast, crew, and contributors. Thanks go to Alan Murphy, Bill Noble, Brian Joyce, Brian Weasler, Curtis Boyle, D. Bruce Moore, Danny O'Connor, David Ladd, Eric Canales, Grant Leedy, James Diffendaffer, Jason Reichert, Jim Brain, Ken Reichert, Mark Bosley, Mark Overholzer, Mikey Furman, Mr. Dave6309, Nick Morentes, Nick Morota, Nick Morota, Nick Morota, Paul Fiscarelli, Richard Lorbieski, Rick Adams, Rick Eulin, Rob Inman, Rondell Vole, Samuel Gimes, Sloopy Malibu, Steve Bjork, Terry Steggy, Tom C., and many more. Please help support the Coco community. A list of various contributors and resources are available at imacoconut.com. That's I-M-A-C-O-C-O-N-U-T dot com. The original Coco Talk theme song is copyright 2008 by D. Bruce Moore and Greg Sheeler. The new Coco Talk theme song is copyright 2020 by D. Bruce Moore. Both are mixed, mastered, and produced by D. Bruce Moore. Coco forever, people! All right, we are now back. Uh, yeah, uh, Curtis just noticed that we need to uh, purge or erase some of these pictures with Stevie in them since he's no longer with the show. So uh, we'll work on that here this next week here. <laughs> People are going to believe you, man. And, and also those uh, the, the golden parachute that he's hoping to get, we, uh, we, we couldn't find one, so we're going to send him a brown parachute instead So with a box of chocolates. <laughs> we switched his gold parachute out with Folgers Crystal. Let's see if he noticed. <laughs> All right, guys. We'll see you guys uh, next week. Same time, same place. We'll see you guys later. Yep. See you next week. All right. Bye. Bye. All right. Bye. Take care.